0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Bernadine Sung Magazine with Compass Real Estate, serving buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. Learn more at homesbybernadine.com.
1: Coming up on Boston Public Radio, President Trump wants to play football, or at least he wants college athletes to play. In a tweet on Monday, the president said it was time for college football to come back and that the athletes have been working too hard to miss the season. Despite pressure from the president and some Republican allies, Big Ten presidents have indicated they'd rather postpone the season until spring when things they hope will be safer. We'll hear more about that and the Bruins' return to the ice when we're joined by sports reporter Trini Kuznarek.
2: I'm Jared Bowen filling in for Jim Browdy. Life for any new mother is often confusing, joyful, and tumultuous. But for one woman, the joy of motherhood was interrupted when she contracted COVID-19. In the new frontline documentary Love, Life, and the Virus, filmmaker Oscar Guerra explores what happens to one family when that mother is stricken with COVID-19 and the community rallies around her. He'll join us later to tell us more. That and more ahead on Boston Public Radio.
1: boston public radio i am marjorie egan jim Browdy has the day off and jared bowen executive art settler here at wgbh is filling in as he usually does for jim Browdy. hello
2: hello marjorie it's very nice to be with you i think john the cloud parker didn't want me to be talking today <laughs> <laughs> oh, i was wondering he, i couldn't hear you for a moment and he, i panicked he just brought me in all all to the rescue
1: Okay. Okay. Very good. That would be that would be a problem, Jared. If, we, if you can <laughs> talk for this entire time. Anyway, uh, so now that thirty million unemployed Americans have lost their six hundred dollar boost to the weekly unemployment benefits, six million are now at risk of not being able to pay their bills. With stimulus talks stalled, the Trump administration delivered a wor- or Trump himself delivered a workaround bypassing Congress with an executive order, which will give people four hundred dollars a week. The problem is, though. It's not the emergency relief people need. It comes with all kinds of strings attached that are bundled up with red tape of the $400 that the federal government is offering. States have to chip in $100 of unemployment, and most states just don't have that kind of cash. So while states try to figure out what this means, the Baker administration has announced what plans it has for the Trump executive order with no certainty about when anyone will get additional unemployment benefits or how much the weekly amount will even be we're asking you how are you budgeting your money 877-301-8970 877-301-8970 if you've lost your job how is this impacting you how are you going to pay your rent, your mortgage? Uh, how about people in your family, your friends, and extended family? Is the extension of the eviction moratorium offering any relief in Massachusetts? It's till October 17th, I believe. Do you have any savings that you can dip into in the meantime? Are you frustrated with the government's failure to deliver anything almost two weeks after the weekly $600 benefits have expired? Um, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, that is October 17th for the foreclosure moratorium and the eviction moratorium. I, I don't know how you can survive because unemployment benefits from your job alone often don't cover your expenses, and this is Massachusetts, where it costs a fortune to rent a closet. So I, I don't know how people are going to survive. Our, our number, is our number again, is 877-301-8970. The email address is bpr at wgbh.org, and you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. You must know lots of people have lost their jobs. So do I, and this is their beside themselves.
2: Well, the reason that would be the case is because we have the highest unemployment rate in the country. In the nation, yeah. Which is really, uh, I don't know why it's difficult to believe, but it is at 17.4%. So that's almost one in five people here in Massachusetts are on unemployment right now. We know that food insecurity is a major issue here, extending well into the middle class as well. Uh, And we are hitting that critical time. I, I often... Look at things through the prism of the arts, and I know a lot of nonprofits saw their fiscal year end at the end of June. So that was also a big financial shift for people once they realized that this was going to continue for the foreseeable future especially businesses that aren't able to reopen. They had to make drastic measures. We've now seen layoffs at many of the major museums. Uh, This is affecting everyone, and we're just sitting here waiting for Washington to try to come to some sort of deal. Uh, People would argue that the president did figure out a deal, which he did over the weekend, but of course that's going to be tied up in, in the courts and legal wrangling, trying to figure out if what he has proposed can even be executed. Add to that the fact that he's calling on states to chip in, and states are saying, we can't afford to offer the supplemental $100 that, that boosts this plan.
1: Yeah, the, the, the whole thing is, is, um, is, is very, very confusing. He's, uh, the president has talked about delaying payroll tax collection for those making under uh, $100,000. Of course, payroll taxes help pay for Social Security and Medicare, um, so that Social Security is is how many people are surviving at the moment. And um, Congress already deferred uh, most employer uh, payroll taxes for the rest of 2020. So the whole thing is a mess. What, What are you doing? Are you taking advantage, as many people are, they are taking advantage of of f- food banks because they're using their money toward the rent or the mortgage. They don't want to get so far behind in the rent or the mortgage, even though we do have the moratorium in Massachusetts anyway through October 17th. But if you have lost your job, if people in your family have lost your jo- their jobs, how are they going to survive without that $600 a week? You know, there was a lot of talk in Republican circles about how the $600 a week was more than some people were making, especially in low-wage states. Massachusetts is not a low-wage state, but many states are. This was a disincentive to go back to work. But there was a study we talked about last week that showed that is not true. People are not sitting home saying, well, I'm not going to go back to my job because the $600 a week. Um, that has been debunked in at least uh, two studies. One of them was out of Stanford University. So this idea that, that everybody's lounging around is, is, is not at all true. I think there's a lot of unease and a lot of uncertainty. 877-301-8970. How are you planning? How are you coping? Uh, what are you doing? Let's start with Isabel Imran-Island. Hi, Isabel.
3: Hi there, how are you?
1: I'm okay, how are you?
3: Well, you know, a little scared. (laughs) What's your deal? I'm a uh, single mother of a six-year-old son. I am a professional bartender out of work in Rhode Island, yeah, um, due to COVID, obviously. Um, I took every penny of that extra $600 and paid my rent until January, is what I did.
1: Well, good for you. So at least you're set rent-wise until January. But what are you doing for the rest of your expenses, Isabel?
3: Um, Living off of unemployment because I can't go back to work. Uh, we're in a, uh, I'm in a, you know, undesirable situation where if I went back right now, it would only be part-time, which wouldn't be enough money. So I can't come off of unemployment yet because I'd have to
1: Oops. Isabel. Isabelle, I apologize. We've got a bad connection, um, so we can't uh, we can't hear you. But th- we got the first part. So thank you very very much for for calling. Yeah, bartenders are kind of screwed.
4: Yeah,
2: it, <laughs> it's well, right, especially when you don't know. There's no planning. Isn't that the most frustrating part of all of this, Marjorie, is that you can't figure out, she, it's amazing what Isabel was able to do to pay through January just anticipating that she won't be able to make a decision. If you follow what Juliette Cayenne pointed out to us yesterday, that, I mean, spring 2021 might be the earliest that we get back. Bill Gates is saying fall 2021 uh, before things get back to any semblance of normalcy. So if if you're trying to take whatever funds you have now and stretch them out, to, for For an entire for more than a year at this point, it just puts everyone in extreme circumstances
1: well, I guess the thing that 's so frustrating about this is um, American workers didn 't do anything wrong, right? We have this pandemic. the government shut down people 's jobs, shut down restaurants, shut down bars, shut down retail stores, shut down all these places, and workers there, through no fault of their own, None. lost. Yep their income. So in other countries we've seen, European Union being a good example, government stepping in and replacing those wages. And we did that $1,200 payment when this first disaster happened, but we've not renewed that. Congress is dickering, of course, back and forth. They're all fighting about, you know, blaming each other about who hasn't done, but, but no one's done anything wrong. And our government is kind of left people out to dry.
2: Well, that's the most upsetting part, too. It, you see so many of these stories saying just that, that we did, we did everything that we thought we were supposed to do. We worked hard. We saved what we could. We paid the bills. We did everything. And who was to see this coming? I mean, and p- people who acted so responsibly, people who have families and were so careful, are now just finding themselves uh, with debt mounting and, and without, as you say, any solution from Washington and without a means to really prepare.
1: Mark in Kingston, thank you for calling uh, Yeah.
5: hi so you asked the question what are you what are you doing to uh protect yourself during this yes. pandemic so we we liquidated my wife's retirement account oh. uh, and then we took advantage of the low interest rates, which are unprecedented so I'm trying to sustain my 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 income, so I reduced my my weekly monthly debts (laughs) and it was unfortunate i had to dip into my wife's retirement account but i think i can get through this i think i can sustain the bills that are coming
2: and is this because you you, you've lost your your jobs both of you or how do you stand in that regard
5: uh no actually my wife took early she took early retirement to help us pay our bills I didn't lose my job. I'm in the restaurant
1: industry. I'm struggling to survive, yeah. but I'm surviving. <laughs> yeah. So, so Mark, if your wife took early retirement to help you pay your bills, but you've dipped into her retirement account, I I mean, she may have to untake her early retirement. Uh, no. Okay. No, she she took it,
5: you know, we figured out the math. We can yep. pay our bills with my sole income and yep. we're going to, we can, we can get through this.
1: Okay. So what am I saying? Yeah. If you're in the restaurant business, Mark, what are you do? How are you doing it? Are you doing takeout or are you doing, what are you doing? Thanks for asking the question.
5: You know, I get a restaurant in
1: Kingston yeah. and
5: we don't have a mortgage. We're Good. blessed. Good. And we're doing Take out. We're doing inside dining, outside dining, and it took a while to get the help back in because they were making more money outside than inside the restaurant, but we're surviving and we've got a great clientele that comes in and smiles and over tips.
2: <laughs> and what, what's the name of your restaurant, Mark?
5: The Charlie Horse.
1: Hey, Mark, one last thing. Um, I just mentioned uh, um that the the studies I've read about people staying home because they're making more money out of work than in work are not are, are not really representative, but you found in your restaurant business that they are correct that people were making more with the six hundred bucks
5: yeah, absolutely, you know, and we were desperate. you know you've got to come in we've got to get through this we've got a skeleton crew, and they I understood what they were doing. I'm afraid. I don't want to get the virus. I I understood. But you know, I don't know how true it was, but you know, we move on. Everyone has different places in their yeah. lives. They have okay. elderly people or young sick kids. So I can appreciate that.
1: Okay. Well Mark, thank you very much for the call and good luck. And um uh, gosh. The interest rates are pretty good now, though, though, aren't they? They're down like a two and a quarter or something yeah, like that.
2: Mark, we wish you all the best. I, I just checked, I think it was two days ago, and they're the lowest that they – they keep reporting this. the lowest since they started recording these types of numbers. So, yeah, but, but with that comes this immense volume of people rushing toward uh, the mortgage brokers, too. Uh, but it is to a refinance. really – I mean, if your numbers are high, you'll, you've never seen these before, so this is absolutely a time to refinance.
1: So we're talking about how people are surviving, particularly those who've lost their jobs and have now lost their 600 bucks in uh, unemployment supplement that the federal government was handing out while Congress dithers about what they're going to do to uh, ameliorate this situation. And the president has offered a plan which seems pretty unworkable and uncertain at the moment. Tom from Taunton, what are you doing? Hi. Um, yeah, so I actually
6: lost my job in March right before like literally a week before everything got shut down by Baker. Um, and it took me a while to get on unemployment because my old job kind of dragged it out to the last minute. Um, I rode that out for a little while until I was able to find work. I have a temp job now in Easton, and I'm only making about like half of what I was making on unemployment which with the expanded unemployment, I was basically just making what I was making while I was working. And yeah, so I'm already having a hard time paying my bills, but this is a temp job and it's going to be over probably by the end of this week. And then I have like no idea how I'm even paying my rent or doing anything.
1: So what do you want? What do you want the government to do, Tom? Do you want the 600 bucks back? Could you get by with 300 bucks? I mean, what, what do you need to make yourself at least not, in a disastrous situation between now and when you can find permanent work?
6: I mean, I'm not even sure. Like, obviously the $600 is helping, but there was always this constant, like, terror while I was sitting at home on unemployment that, you know, I need to try and find work immediately because what if this comes back to haunt me? What if the government turns around next year and says, well, you know you owe this much money for us for unemployment or for this and that, or, well, did he really have the opportunity to work? Did he really miss out on a job or anything like that? Because there are several occasions where I could have maybe taken a job, but I would have been making, like, fast food wages, or there was one job I had tried working at for a week that literally their truck wasn't street legal and they wanted me to drive around doing that for, like, Just getting paid to do that. And you know, how do I explain to somebody if I get asked questions of well yeah, I did have an opportunity to do that job, but also that wasn't a job I could legally be doing anyway, so what do I do here? Um, And during those kind of blue colour jobs. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, hey. Tom thank you for the call and 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 good luck good luck that's you're in a you're in a rather stressful situation to understate things very uh, dramatically I want to give a shout-out to uh, Sean Murphy. He writes uh, for The Globe, and he's got a great piece in the paper today about the bills keep piling up. What can I do? And he talks about you're still out with questions like I'm still out of work and I can't pay my mortgage. What can I do? How much longer is the Federal Protection, the, the CARES Act uh, that gives you the right to suspend mortgage payment for 180 days? How do I... Uh, do I have to repay, skip payments? What about my credit card bills? It's a great piece in the Globe today by Sean Murphy, uh, questions and answers on how to get through this financial um, disaster. Can you imagine the stress? I mean, I'm so lucky I still have a job. I can't imagine the stress of, of not having an income, having a mortgage, having children,
2: I can't. I feel unbelievably fortunate too to, to not be in these situations, and I think it's also worth pointing out the through line through in Sean Murphy's piece is to be as proactive as possible. Yes, the, the government has stepped in a lot of regards. So you're for for time, you're protected with rent, you're protected with mortgage. But in terms of credit card bills that you might be wary of paying, just try to get in front of it and try to strike your own deals with those companies because uh, that's your best option. So we are talking about unemployment with the stimulus talks stalled and President Trump's executive order to deliver. Federal Federal funds going nowhere fast. We're taking your calls and asking how this is affecting you. This is 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we're taking your calls and your emails asking how you are managing now that it's been 11 days since the extended unemployment benefits have expired. Do you think lawmakers understand the precarious position you and people you know are in in Massachusetts where housing and the cost of living is so high. High is putting away money in savings an option for you at all. Our number is 877 301 8970. The address is bpr at wgbh.org and you can tweet us at Bost Public Radio. Um, Pretty desperate stories here, Uh, Jared. Let's go to Sandra and Natick. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hi
2: there. i so happy to talk to you folks. I listen to your show
7: every day. It gives me. Oh, thank you. Um, just joy when I hear you. Um, I just wanted to say I've been in the restaurant business, same place for 35 years. We couldn't wait to get back. I couldn't wait to get back to work. You know, you can only be home for so much. And as far as the $600 goes, that was about $200 short of what we usually make every week. Um, yeah. So now there's not enough of business. And luckily my restaurant Usually we have eight servers a night, some you know, six to eight servers a night, and we're down to four. So we're lucky to get two shifts a week. And unemployment, is 137 to $200 a week now. It's, it's difficult. It's, you know, I, I don't even care if we get to 600 At least make $400 would be a livable wage, or just to try to make what we were making. Um, But we all wanted to get back to work. There was nobody. We were calling them saying, please open. And we were lucky that he could open up and put a patio on the back. Um, he's always done takeout. But, you know, you didn't need that many people for takeout. So he rotated so everybody who could work could work, you know. Um, So that's just I have to say. I just hope that the government gets it all together and just tries to help us out.
1: You know, Sandra, I wonder, um, I personally feel uncomfortable still eating inside. I've done a lot of outside eating and, and a lot of takeout. Yeah. But how, how yeah. nervous are you uh, being inside? <clears throat>
7: uh-huh. You know, it's funny. Uh, very, we're, we're all very nervous, but, you know, we, we take great time to sanitize our pens and when we give back the credit card, and there are so many elements to it, you know, you're all using the same computer screen. Um, it is it's, it's a scary time, you know. You just have to be careful and diligent, and luckily we are very diligent. But you know, things can happen. Myself, I, I see what goes on. I wouldn't eat indoors, personally, but outside, I yeah. feel like you know, it's a it's a your better bet eat outdoors and to eat indoors it's tough now i mean we, we're dying it's so hot under the tent with this weather that we've had oh, you know God, grateful yeah. working and grateful for people to, to come in but it's so hot we, we just you know and i'm no spring chicken anymore so running up and down the stairs to the kitchen because the tent isn't close to our to our restaurant it's a killer but um yeah it's 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 a, it's a tough time it's a very tough time Sandra,
1: thank you very much for the call, and good
2: luck. Yeah, we wish you the best, too. Oh, this is just so hard to hear these, these calls. We, we had a caller last can you week imagine? who was saying, uh, who made a point, if you have the money, tip 50%, if you can do it. I mean, I, I think any of us who are fortunate to have our jobs, are aware of how much we can help right now, how much we can patronize these businesses and, and, and do what we can.
1: Can you imagine eating outside in a tent today? It's going to be like 91 degrees, 92 degrees with all well, this
2: humidity. I did it last night, actually. It wasn't so bad How'd in, the it go? Sh- in the shade around, I don't know, 530. It didn't, it didn't feel so bad. I guess there was a little bit of a breeze. Oh, good.
1: <laughs> I have to bring my spray bottle of water. That's what I carry with you all the time, my spray bottle of water to spray, spray myself when things get too hot. Let's go to Lauren and Lynn. Thank you for calling, Lauren.
3: Hi. um, So we're talking about, you know, being without the $600 unemployment, but I actually applied for unemployment back in March. My job is directly tied to schools being open, and it's been five months, and I haven't even gotten anything yet. Um, And I have a kid. So we're talking about being without that money, but I think what some people don't realize is that they're still so backed up.
1: What's, um, what's going on? Do you know why the delay has been so extreme? Um,
3: I, I really don't. And it, it was one of the most frustrating things. Early on. I was actually on the news um, just because it was so frustrating trying to call in and even find out what was going on. Um, as anybody on unemployment probably knows, it's almost impossible to get a hold of anybody. Um, so recently I was able to, and they basically said that they were verifying my identity. So I'm in some kind of line that I've been in for about four or five months now, uh, where they just need to check my paperwork. Yeah, and I have a. So what are you
1: doing? What are you doing? How how are you? How are you? uh, Buying food and paying the bills.
3: We were actually saving up for a house, so I'm eating up all of my savings for that. Oh Um, God. I, I will. Ha- I, I will say that the people I've spoken to in unemployment have been really nice, and you know I don't fault them at all. It's just I, I think sometimes people don't even realize, you know, in their office when I call them, they're shocked in their own office that it's so bad. Um,
2: yeah, and I'm sure this is, this calling. is
1: the Massachusetts. This is this is in Massachusetts. You're you're calling from Lynn, so you're talking about Massachusetts, right?
3: Um, Is Lauren still there? Yeah, I'm actually glad that you're so shocked, too, because, yeah, and uh, I'm glad that you're so shocked, too, because I I sometimes feel like I'm in outer space, you know, and I'm talking to people, and there's almost just no resolution except, like, hey, you're in line, keep waiting, and I keep saying, listen, I have a kid, I'm eating up the savings that I had for a
1: home. Lauren, one last thing. I presume there's no No, retroactive action here. Do you get $600 back to when you first applied, or are you just out of luck that that you just have to wait for the $600 you get? Well, now you may not even get that. But, I mean, whatever Massachusetts works out. Is there any, like you applied in March, so you'll get retroactive pay till March or not?
3: I've spoken to a few people that said that i will get retroactively paid and i also oh, gosh spoken let's to hope so people that said that i'll get the six hundred dollars but i have to say now that it's run out it is really scary because you almost think like okay the money for, for those people getting six hundred dollars is coming from somewhere and if that's dried up then how on earth could i be getting that six hundred dollars i've spoken to people that said you will um, and honestly, at this point, I'm really, really depending on it more than you can imagine. <laughs> yeah.
2: So sorry to hear that, Lauren. Thank you, yeah. thank you for the call,
1: and hang in there. And I hope you get a res. That's really frustrating. The bureaucracy. I mean, we heard that early on that people were having a really terrible time uh, with the state. Unemployment issue, and apparently they're still having a terrible time. I guess we have time for uh, uh, one more, maybe. Chris in Boston, thank you for calling, Chris.
2: Hi, Chris.
8: Hey, Marjorie. Um, we um, we talked um, many times, but a couple months ago we talked. I was um, roommate. Oh, good. The rail, and I lost. Oh, him. yes. Who I'm lost okay his life? Now. Yeah.
1: Excuse yeah, me, Chris. Just tell, so before you tell us why you're calling, before you are telling us about why you're calling yeah. now, tell people about your roommate. Yeah. What happened to him?
8: Okay, so he was 31 and he early on he went in the hospital on the 22nd and he passed away on the 29th of March. Yeah, for, over 4 months going on 5 yeah, from COVID. Yeah. Yes, and so he was a good friend of mine and he was my roommate and um when I called in I think it was 5 weeks into um that and um it was great to get that sense of community on the radio and all that support and um but, you know, now I had to move because I was in a, a two bedroom and it's impossible to find any kind of roommate right now. Um, and um, so I moved to a one bedroom. Uh, so I'm paying more in rent. Um, oh. I work in a restaurant business also. So um, and I'm only working two shifts a week. And um, I was really relying on the 600. Um, it's very, very stressful. Um, I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is Google what's going on. And, um, but, you know, it's just like no control over what's, ah, what's happening. Um, I'm also a musician. Um, you know, I had shows. I used to do cabarets here and there. I don't have that going on. Um, so it's, it's very difficult. And then, you know, um, I think, Jared, you mentioned, you know, like when you go out to 50%, yeah, from your, from your mouth to God's ears. I mean, so many times, there's so many more steps we have to take as a server, and so many times it's still the 20 percent. Like 80, 80 percent of the time, it's 20 percent, and then you got those 20 percent of the people that understand, and then are going to throw you that extra 10, or I mean, sometimes they throw you an extra 50, um, and that's really nice, and then you feel appreciated. But it's um, fewer people are getting used to seeing you with the mask and uh, there's not that same empathy anymore that I found that I was getting right at the beginning when I went back.
2: And is it, how do you feel it's, uh, if you're in working in Boston, do you feel in the city it's picking up or, or is it, as we hear from other places that people are a little reluctant?
8: So, I mean, you know, this is the thing, it is picking up a little bit where I am. I'm right in the city. Um, But there's so many places around us that are not open So of course that's going to happen, but even where I am, I'm not going to say where I am. But so many, we get so many tourists. Um, So I, I wait on people from all over, and so they're obviously here for different reasons, and they need to find a place to eat. So yes, I'd say our business is about ten to twenty percent of what it used to be.
2: Oh my goodness! Wow.
8: And we used to have a very, very busy restaurant. Chris.
1: i'm i'm i've you've had a very tough year I hope 2021 huh. is better for you. You're, thank you for calling. Thank you for calling and hang in there.
8: Thanks, Madri. Thanks for everything. Yeah, thank You're, you're thank very
1: you. you're very welcome. You're very welcome. I just I just want to wrap this up by, by pointing out that some people are texting about, you know, President Trump has offered to extend this $400 to the end of the year. Not $600, but $400. But the the problem is it's not clear how this can happen, even if it's legal to happen. Congress has the power of the purse. We don't know when it's going to happen. So it's Nice suggestion he makes, and very welcome, I'm sure, to everybody that called today, but I'm not sure if it's a real deal, especially when he wants the states to pay 100 of the $400, so we just have to wait and see. It's not going to happen right away, so clearly people are in really dire straits, and they need some money.
2: Yeah, we thank all of our callers today and the ones we didn't get to. We do wish you all the best, and it helps us understand, helps us be better people when we're out in the world to help take care of one another. For the Boston Celtics, coming up, it hasn't easy been easy being green. Could they finally be playing their way out of a losing streak? Trini Kuznarek joins us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy and joining us on the line to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of sports and society is Trini Kuznarek. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a Boston Public Radio contributor. Hello, Trini Kuznerik. Hello, Marjorie. Hi, Jared. Hi, Trini. Great to talk to you. So, so Trini Kuznarek, we know that... Um, The president is very anxious for college football to proceed as usual. He's very anxious for schools as well to proceed as usual. But what is going on uh, with college football? It doesn't look like full steam ahead to me.
9: No, it's definitely not full steam ahead. So we're still waiting. I was hoping we would have official word by this point. um, What some of the Power Five conferences are doing, namely the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. um, We're supposedly their board of directors meeting this morning. Um, to decide whether or not their, their member schools would be allowed to play football this fall. Um, that decision has not yet come down. Um, but everything from the inside, everything that's being leaked out, uh, is suggesting that it is highly unlikely that some of these major conferences are going to proceed with football this year. Um, some other, like Mountain West, uh, the MAC uh ivy league um have said umass has said they will not play football this fall uconn has said they will not play football this fall so some individual schools and other smaller conferences have already said nope we're done we're not going to do this to our student athletes um but some of these the power five conferences which are really the big money makers the ones that you're always going to see on you know espn and um, CBS and Fox and NBC, though, those those conferences are still weighing their options because similar to the conversation that you just had with callers about you know, financial situations, obviously this is a health issue uh, first and foremost, but it's also an economic one. And it's not just yeah. an economic one in terms of Oh, these, you know, boosters and these universities are going to lose out on you know, millions of dollars. They are. But what I think a lot of people don't understand is the trickle down effect. Um, I read something this morning in Axios, uh, which does this daily sports, um, a, a sports newsletter similar to their news ones. Um, and they used LSU, Louisiana State University, as its example LSU their football program brings in $56 million last year. Wow. That wow. is more than every other all of their other sports including their college basketball team lost 23 million. So 80% of all athletic programs are funded by football. So and then you think about all of the jobs within those athletic departments. So the trickle down effect is real. Um, and you're also talking about, you know, there's been a real push by players, uh, a hashtag we want to play campaign um, right. because some of these kids feel um, these young adults are not kids. Some of these young adults feel that they're actually safer health wise in a football program where they're monitored daily, where they're tested a couple of times a week. Um, where they're in a controlled environment versus sending some of these kids home and oftentimes to states and communities, which may not have strict protocols in place, Um, many of whom, to be quite honest, are in socioeconomic conditions, maybe living in multi-generational families, all of those scenarios, which put a person at a greater risk. Their argument is we are at less of a health risk if we are in a controlled environment. The problem with that, guys, is that there's 130 FBS schools. So that's like the top football. So that's, that's football bowl subdivision. So anyone who plays in a bowl game, there's 130 schools in that. So roughly 13,000 football players. So Trini, and this each is... each one is like separate. It's like, it's like, it'd be like 130 states in the United States all doing their own thing.
2: Which plays into what I wanted to ask you this is not like any other decisions that universities are making for all of the reasons you just outlined, probably chief among them, the economic reasons, broadcast rights, all of the money that comes in. So who is making the decisions or the big decision in this case?
9: Well, it seems to sort of like everything else in the United States with this, it's coming down to member, it's coming down to member schools within conferences. So rather than the NCAA And this is, I think, Jared, what is the most frustrating for sports fans, athletes, families of athletes, coaches, universities. How much time has the NCAA had to take a look at what is going on worldwide and look worldwide how other sports leagues, all professional, albeit all professionals, and these kids aren't paid. So we need to take that into consideration as well. But it's not like they didn't have time. To really thoughtfully put together a plan that could maybe allow this to move forward in in, as safe, and and nothing's ever 100% safe, but as safe in an environment as you possibly could. Instead, it's like this hodgepodge of each, you know, each district or school, like Boston College, for example. I think has had no positive tests or very few positive tests and they've been working out and getting ready. And then you have Clemson football, which had 37 guys test positive. Wow. So it's, it's like each place is different because each place, each place is in a different state. So they have different state um, protocols and, and rules and regulations in place. And each program has something different. So rather than there being a blanket, like, Hey, you want this, you want this show to go on. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to follow. This is how it has to happen. Instead, it's like you do one thing in Louisiana, you do one thing in Mississippi, you do another in Massachusetts, you do another in Wisconsin, another in Michigan, and it's, it, it ends up being a disaster. And it's just really unfortunate that these kids who, you know, for a lot of them, guys, and, I, and people don't think about this either, I think, for these young athletes who do have aspirations to play at the pro level, this yep. would completely derailed our future. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of these kids that, you know, again, coming from certain situations, this might have been their meal ticket out of a really bad situation. And now it, it's just and even if it's not, even if it's just a kid who wants to play because they love football and they and they enjoy it and they've played it since they were a kid, you know, they're the pawns in this battle. Um, and there's well, also been some reports today, Marjorie, that they, the that heart condition, the reason, well, the yes. heart condition, yes, the heart condition, that's a big driving factor. The inflammation um, I, of
1: the heart muscle that the, the, yeah, the, the you, at least five it's big like 10 myo- conference athletes have had myocarditis. I think that's how you myocarditis, pronounce Myocarditis.
9: Thank you. Yes. So yeah. that's a big, that's a big health issue, right? So this is what, this is what, to put it a local spin on it. This is what Eduardo Rodriguez has. So Eduardo Rodriguez did not have a heart condition prior to contracting COVID-19. Since contracting COVID-19, he now has this inflammation of the heart. And he is, again, a young, fit athlete. This has now happened to five athletes in the Big Ten. And I think a couple of other athletes scattered throughout these Power Five conferences. So that has raised a red flag. Um, And and again, you know, schools need to take that into consideration while 99.9% of the kids who go out and play, they're going to be fine, even if they do contract this, they're probably asymptomatic. Mm. There's no long term effects. But man, you've got a couple of kids and God forbid something like that isn't monitored or a coach, as often happens in college sports tells that athlete to turn a blind eye to it, push through it, suck it up, keep playing, and then that kid dies on the football field, then you've got a real problem on your hands.
2: So Trini Kuznarek, moving on to uh, the prof- Professional football and uh, Cam Newton here in the Patriots. I mean, do we have a lot of sympathy for this guy for having to <laughs> follow in Tom Brady's giant <laughs> epic footsteps? Marjorie, you should have been the one asking this with your your Tom Brady fan club over there.
1: Well, I I, I I have a potential new 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 guy in in Cam Newton. He's he's oh, certainly fun, fan? Trenny. Well, I don't know enough about him, but I know he was a great player. I know he's had some injuries, but I know he's certainly. Fun? I mean, he's kind of a wild and crazy guy, isn't he? He's not dull. Oh. I'll say that for oh, him. Oh, no, he's
9: not dull at all. Like, watching his press conference on Friday, um, all three quarterbacks talked on Friday, and he comes up, he's got this, like, jacket-type shirt on that's floral <laughs> and around his head. I laughed and said, oh, you borrowed my mama's Babushka. That's so lovely. Um, <laughs> exactly. He's actually he got, like, a big personality, and he answers questions. You know, he said all of the right things, but he certainly answers questions. In a more playful, like personality-driven tone than say Tom Brady did, Um, but he did say all the right things, and everybody thus far has been very impressed with how he has carried himself, how he has dedicated himself to learning the playbook, to getting you know on the same page with with guys on the field, and holding these small uh, side sessions and workouts to try and develop some sort of chemistry with his receivers. So, I mean, I'll be honest, guys. I did not know what to expect from Cam Newton because my only experience with him is, you know, seeing snippets of press conferences here and there when he was at the Carolina Panthers. Um, but I watched the entire press conference on Friday and I finished and immediately was like, wow, this, this guy's impressive. Like, yeah. there's something about him. There is, a, there is a quiet confidence and also a chip on his shoulder that I think is really going to push him this year. The biggest question, Marjorie, and you touched on it, is... He has had right shoulder surgery twice. He's had a foot injury that dogged him all of last year. And so is he healthy? Can he's, he's had like only I think two full seasons um, where he hasn't been affected by some sort of nagging injury. He's a big bruising quarterback. Um, He's not like a typical pocket passer, like a Tom Brady. So he plays more physical style of football than Brady did. um, Who of course we know never, ever got hurt except for 2008 um, when he missed that whole season with the ACL. Yeah. Um, but well, I, well, I think we, I'm psyched. I think it could be really fun.
1: Do we know if he's going to get the starting spot though? I I, I thought it was still up in the yeah, air. Yeah,
2: I made a leap there with it with that one. Well,
9: yeah, Jared, I, I mean, is it a leap? I mean, they're saying <laughs> it's going to be a competition. And like Brian Hoyer was like, No, I've always looked at everything as a competition. And Jared Stidham's like, Competition makes us all better. Even Cam Newton, when asked, was said, hey, you know what, nothing is given to us. Every time I step on the field, it's a competition to prove, you know, that I deserve the spot that I have. But something I – most of us, most of the pundits feel that something pretty drastic would have to happen, Um, like Cam Newton wouldn't be ready to go physically um, for Jarrett Stidham to leapfrog him. I mean, I don't know how you cannot – at the very least try to go with a guy who has been to the super bowl and won an MVP and whose nickname is Superman. Like he hasn't done it with the <laughs> Patriots. No, but he's done it somewhere else. And he's only 31. Like, I know people say, Oh, he's, you know, he's past that 30 year old threshold. Like 30's not the same as it used to be. 31 is pretty young. Still. Yeah. Um, So yeah, Jared. I think I think you're pretty safe in saying Cam Newton's. You know, he's not officially he's not officially the starting quarterback. He has to earn that spot. But I would say um, I, I would bet I bet a pretty large amount that he would be the starting quarterback on the first for Sunday of the
2: year. Well, even in his early 30s, he's still like 70 years younger than Tom Brady. So That's
9: right. <laughs> hey, easy, easy. Tom and I are the same age. Just calm down, oh, yeah. you are you're just,
1: you're just, You're just youngsters. You're, both of you, just youngsters. We're talking to Trini Kuznera. Uh, Trini, t- t- let's move on to the Celtics because um, I wanted to talk about how they're doing as well as what Jalen Brown is up to in these post-game press conferences. Yeah. So um, wh- what's uh, Brown talking about?
9: Well, Brown, uh, Jalen Brown, first of all, has always like one of the, I don't want to say fears, but questions, Marjorie, about Mm -hmm. like, about what Jalen Brown's ceiling could be as a, as a player, as like a talent on the basketball course court, people wondered, would he be able to be a good basketball player because he has so many interests off the court, particularly when it comes to social justice issues? Like, I think it was like a year or so ago that he went into this MIT fellowship program, and was working with MIT in an attempt to like, re, like reexamine the way education systems are set up in cities, um, thus setting up a lot of kids who are socio, you know, in lower socioeconomic areas to fail because of the way schools are funded. Like, these he goes to the state house and meets with you know Senate President Karen Spilka about social issues. He's a mental health advocate, and he's been using his post game platforms to talk about this. So the other night that. Celtics have a win. I think it was after the win over Orlando in overtime and Jalen had a solid game. Um, and he spent a large portion of his press conference talking about again, um, police brutality, uh, specifically bringing up the name of Brianna Taylor. Once again, um, as we all know that the officers who were involved in her killing, um, are still walking free, no charges, no punishment. Yep. Um, and then he also went on to talk about the mental health challenges of being in the bubble and how guys aren't talking about it, but how isolating it is and lonely and how there's no escape from basketball. So you're constantly just, you know, you finish a game and then maybe somebody played really well against you and you don't really want to see them at lunch, but you have no choice because you know, you're all eating in the same place, staying in the same hotels, living in this same world. There's no escape for them to go. And he said, it really is draining and taking its toll on guys' mental health. And I give him a lot of credit because, one, um, he talks about things that a lot of people um, are afraid to talk about. Um, he doesn't worry about, you know, how it's going to affect whether or not people like him as a player. But two, Jalen doesn't just talk about things. Jalen researches. Jalen does his homework. He, um, he does all of the back work needed to, under- to fully understand um, the causes that he gets behind Um, so you're not going to catch him saying something that isn't well thought out, um, And something that he feels passionately about, but is also acting on off the court.
2: You kind of answered this, but I'm wondering how he is being received as somebody who doesn't follow sports as much. I still see sports as one of these last bastions where a lot of these conversations around sexuality, mental um, issues, health, uh, certainly societal affairs is still kind of a no go area. Is that changing or is he really still an outlier
9: in that regard? Um, in the NBA, he's definitely not an outlier. Um, I mean, if you've watched any NBA this year, um, Jalen is certainly not the only player. There was at one point, um, I think before games started. So when they were still in the exhibition portion of the, like the bubble season where Marcus Smart was asked a string of questions and every single one, he just answered Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor, Brianna Taylor, and then wow. walked away. Um, so these guys are no longer alone in their activism. Um, so I think there is, to be quite honest, safety in numbers. But, Jared, as you know, unfortunately, there are still people out there who subscribe to the school of thought that you're an athlete, shut up and dribble or shut up and hit the baseball, whatever it is. I don't want my entertainment to be disrupted by your social activism. And again, take, social media for what it's worth. But, you know, sometimes I stupidly will click on the comments um, of an article written about someone speaking out on social issues, or I'll read the the comments posted on Twitter. And you'll have a lot of people who are saying, this makes me like Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart or Jason Tatum even more. This makes me, you know, good for him using his platform uh, for good. And then, of course, you'll have the other people who take sometimes uh really inappropriate, um, racial, um, jobs at, at these guys. Um, sometimes they'll just express their displeasure and again, their own comfort and their own enjoyment being disrupted, God forbid, um, by something that these guys deal with and live with on a daily basis. Like if there's one thing that Jalen, um, I know has said over and over and over again, and he said this the other day, he said, I know if I wasn't in a Celtics uniform, That And if I have this life that I could just as easily be one of one of these young men or women who gets a gun pulled on on them, he's like, and I still know, you know, I think a lot of these athletes, when you talk to them, they understand that when especially football players when their helmet is off and their jersey is off and you may not recognize them and they're driving a really nice sports car through a really nice neighborhood, they're just as scared when they get pulled over. Um, you know, whether they're, say, Devin McCordy or Jalen Brown or the guy down the street, um, you know, who is working at the hospital, um, what you do does not matter if you are a black person in America. And these athletes are trying to hammer that home, you know, right now, night in and night out. And I give them a lot of I give them a lot of credit because I think that this time and talking to some of my black friends, I think that this time has been really emotionally draining for a lot of them um, to keep fighting a fight. Um, And but then continue to see the injustices happen as they're fighting.
1: We're talking to NBC Sports Anchor, NBC Sports Boston Anchor, I should have said NBC Sports Boston. Yes. BPR contributor Trini Kuznari. So Trini, Celtics, I guess, are doing pretty well. Um, The Bruins are doing really well. Huh? What's going on?
9: No, no. And Bruins are no. Okay, Celtics are doing well. They've won three in a row. Uh, They have two more games before they go into the postseason. They're going to go in as three seed. The Bruins, Marjorie, did not win a game in the round robin in the bubble. They went 0 and four, and so now they did shows how did, much they I know. Win, they I thought they were win doing a great. Single game, no, nope, they didn't win a single game in the round robin. And then when they were asked about it yesterday, Brad Marchand just kind of blew it off, like, "and listen, okay." To be fair, the round robin games really were just for seeding within within this, you know, the yep. Stanley Cup playoffs, and to basically let the guys get their legs back under them, let them get some. Some time back on the ice, figure things out, almost look at it like preseason games, which is what Brad Marchand called them yesterday. Mm -hmm. Our Joe Haggerty wrote on NBC Sports Boston today that to even look at how the Bruins played during the round-robin games is absurd, and you shouldn't worry about it, and they're fine. But Kyle Draper and I on our show last night were like, we think you're crazy, Joe. Like, (laughs) I don't know how you can just go out and not care and pretend like games don't matter. And then, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they go out tonight and they flip the switch they play the Carolina Hurricanes tonight in the first of a best-of-seven series in the first round of, it, of the Stanley Cup final playoffs. Um, but I don't know. I'm not totally sold. I don't, listen, I am no hockey expert by yep. any well, stretch of the imagination. Obviously. But, Me
1: neither. <laughs> <gonna> obviously. <laughs> but
9: I feel like I understand sports well enough that, like, yeah. teams that are usually good – have some momentum and have some like you get a little something to build on when you're coming like even if they would have gone one in three but came out against the capitals and played really well on sunday i would have been like okay they they flip the switch but like i don't know i'm not sold i'm gonna have to see how they play against carolina they should beat carolina um then but then as the playoffs continue to move forward who knows so okay. we'll see. I could be wrong and they could win the whole thing. Okay. Maybe, so I meant the I'm Celtics
1: right. are doing good and the Bruins. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, uh, yes. And the Bruins, I too mean, be determined. Okay. Too be determined. Thank you. Hey, great to talk to you, Trini. Thanks you so too, much. You too, guys. Talk
9: to you
2: soon. Okay. okay. Just you. Marjorie, I just quit while I was ahead on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Ask as few questions I thought, as possible.
1: thought they were doing great. I thought <laughs> they were doing great. Oh, well. Wow.
2: Maybe you're a harbinger <laughs> of good things to come and then you'll be there. Good luck, Charm. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Trini Kuznarek joins us every week. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston, and she is a BPR contributor. Well, coming up, a new frontline documentary takes on the enormity of the pandemic and brings it down to size with a focus on how it's affected one immigrant family right here in Connecticut. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: up on Boston Public Radio. For now, the president and a broad swath of the American public seem aligned when it comes to immigration. As the COVID-19 pandemic worsens in the United States, a new NPR poll found that most Americans are in favor of temporarily limiting immigration so long as it's done in the name of public health. Since March, though, the president has used the pandemic to justify several of his most draconian immigration rules. We'll hear more about it from Ali Narani of the National Immigration Forum up ahead.
2: I'm Jared Bowen filling in for Jim Browdy. Vacation land is open for business to the residents of the Northeast. That is unless you happen to live in Massachusetts or Rhode Island. While New Yorkers and Vermonters can roll right into Maine and enjoy a (laughs) lobster roll, we in the Bay State will have to quarantine or show up with a recent negative COVID test if we want to weekend in Portland this summer. Later, we'll hear what happened when travel writer Christopher Muther took his parents up to Maine for a leisurely getaway. That and more ahead on Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome to Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. Jim Browdy has a day off. WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen is filling in for Jim. Hello again, Jared.
2: Hello again, Marjorie.
1: Okay, before we begin, I have a programming note. Uh, Governor Baker is doing a press, con- press conference. It's supposed to start right around now. We're live streaming it at wgbhnews.org and we will bring you any updates uh, during the hour. This is a very tough story coming up about the scale of the coronavirus pandemic. It's nearly impossible to grasp as the number of cases reach 20 million, but a new Frontline documentary makes the abstract horror of the, pa- horror of the pandemic real and human by focusing on the toll it takes on one immigrant family. It's called Love, Life, and the Virus. It airs tonight at 10 p.m. You can also find it online at pbs.org Frontline. We're joined by Oscar Guerra, the documentary's producer, Oscar, thank you very much um, for joining us. and Congratulations on a really, a really powerful piece of work. Thanks thank for you so here. much.
10: It, it's, it, it, it's a pleasure uh, for being here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So so, give us an outline of the story and then we'll go through it um, little by little. What did you tell us about?
10: Of course, um, so Suli, our main character, Suli, uh, was around eight months pregnant when she began to, uh, with this cough and, and wheezing, uh, she could hardly breathe. Uh, Suli is, is a, a, a mom from uh, Guatemala. She lives here in Stamford, Connecticut, and she had to, to go to the hospital and she had to be intubated to then perform a C-section because the baby was losing uh, a lot of oxygen. So it, it, it had to, it had to happen there, and of course, then they realized because it, it was because of uh, COVID complications. The real problem was that her husband Marvin and um, the seven-year-old son Jr. Uh, were also believed to be infected with with the coronavirus. Meaning that once the baby was born, it wouldn't be safe for for the baby to go home with uh, to them. Uh, Marvin, the 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 father, said, "I would have turned into my son's assassin." Um, So this is where, where, you know, they didn't have anyone uh, to turn. So in early April, uh, just before giving birth on on a ventilator, Suli had a chance to talk to Ms. Luciana Lira. Ms. Luciana Lira is uh, Junior's uh, bilingual uh, teacher. And she, Ms. Lira, remember receiving a, a phone call. She thought it was a prank. At that moment, because she heard a very raspy voice saying, "You know, take care of my son, take care of my husband, and and, and help my family." Imagine just receiving that phone call. You know, no. like what would you do? I can't. <laughs> no. And and and, and 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 I keep asking myself that question: like, what kind of person you have to be to be able to to say, "Uh, you know, what's going on? Uh, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to help out no matter what." Uh, and and, and that's how Luciana, Miss Miss Lira, uh. uh enter the picture. And she said, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to help 100%. Uh, she was not even sure what, what was ahead of her. Uh, she thought she was staying with the baby for maybe a couple of days, and she ended up staying with the baby for five and a half weeks.
2: Well, Oscar, we want to talk more about that community element. But first, just to give people a sense of the, the film that you have made um, here, this takes us back to the beginning when Zulia is in the hospital. Here's a nurse talking about uh, what it was like caring for her at the height of this sickness. She was
9: absolutely one of the sickest patients on the floor at that time, and I thought she very well might not make it through this and that was that was terrifying
2: and Oscar, I was wondering, here you are with this family as this is just descending on them, you know, wife, mother in the i c u having just given birth, not sure what's going to happen with the baby. I could tell from some of the outside shots that it was winter, so this it seemed like it was very early on in the pandemic when we had even fewer answers than we do now about what might have been in store. What was it like to be in that moment in the hospital around this family with just what I can only assume is epic fear?
10: I think that's a great question. It was, uh, it was very surreal uh to be anywhere you know and and it was even more surreal to be inside a hospital uh my wife is a critical care nurse so i, I knew a, a little bit about the the stories that were going on you know and, and and all the 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 hardships and 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 the real um heroes and such inspiring stories that i would hear you know even from my wife just coming back home she was being scared just to to hold her two year old daughter. She 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 was wearing a mask. We were all wearing masks inside the house, uh, so you can imagine how was the situation inside the hospital. It was not easy to be there with, with with a camera. It's not easy to be inside a hospital with a camera, let alone in the peak of the pandemic here in in, in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, but 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 you know, I think that it was. Uh, I think that the hospital realized that it was a good opportunity to start documenting the. The work and the tireless labor that, 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 that people do. In the documentary, you'll hear Dr. Bernstein. He was the one who, uh, uh, who started the experimental treatment, uh, to save Suli's life. And I asked him, I said, you think the treatment saved uh, her life? And, and he said, you know, we, we like to think that the, this experimental treatment uh, saved her life for the doctors. But it was really the nurses and the people on the bedside that really help uh, uh, patients. You know, Sully was in an induced coma for uh, almost 18 days. And, you know, Nurse Erica, the one that we just heard, she said she, she, uh, she, she kept saying she's not going to die on, uh, uh, on me. And, and I think that's the it's, it's beautiful to, to, to be able to witness uh, that firsthand.
1: Uh, let's hear from uh, that doctor you just mentioned, Michael Bernstein, the doctor at Stanford Health. That, of course, is in Stanford, Connecticut, not that far from here. Here's Dr. Bernstein explaining the typical recovery time for people coming out of the ICU.
6: Most people who are in the ICU take weeks, if not months, to gain her strength back. I imagine that's what she's going through. But most people will tell you even their mind isn't back where, where they were.
1: You know that's one of the things um, you talk about too, uh, uh, Oscar. That that Suli had these terrible nightmares where she dreamed about terrible things happening to her children, and the doctor talked about PTSD um, mm-hmm. from in in the ICU. Tell us a little bit about that.
10: Um, well, when I had the chance to interview Suli. Um, she was i mean she was terrified you know she she talked a lot about nightmares but she said that sometimes she she didn't know if it was real or not um and and, and everything was because she was you know in this uh, roto bed uh, in, in a in a fancy bed that turns you upside down she was like that for almost 18 days uh so imagine that the type of uh, visions that you're seeing. she she said that she felt that she was in chain All the time, she felt like the 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 junior, the seven year old uh, boy was there, but but he wasn't. The the nurses were mistreating him. Uh, He he was not able to eat. So, uh, imagine me. It's it's constant fear. It's uh, it was it was really hard for her, and it took her a while. You know, it it, it takes it takes a while for you to be able to recover, according to Doctor Bernstein, and, and no wonder why.
2: Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think that is something that we're learning a lot more about now, what the effects of being on a ventilator are, for, especially for so long, as in her case, uh, and what it means for patients who have just been uh, ravaged by the c- c- coronavirus, what it means for life after. Who was who the Zuli that you documented who came out of the hospital, how she came out of the hospital?
10: You know, I think that she's a very, very strong woman. And I think that she had the determination to be, to, to get better and be there for her family. So I think that helped her a lot. Uh, she's a strong woman, but, but even with a strong and, and, and healthy woman like Suli, Suli, Suli is only 30 years old. And even for someone like her, it was really hard to readjust. Uh, um, you know, they're in the, in the, in this place they don't know if it's night or day they're turned upside down uh and, and in most cases i mean they're, they're going to be in an induced coma um and and it's you can only imagine what w- w- what type of uh, recovery they need to go through it's not just the, the physical but i would say the mental it's it's uh it's so important and, and we haven't uh, i think that we're learning a little bit more about that like you uh, uh, mentioned.
1: We're talking to Oscar Guerra. He's the producer behind the new Frontline documentary, "Love, Life, and Virus." So, so the situation is, she's in terrible shape in the hospital, trying to recover from this. The baby is delivered. The baby does not have coronavirus, but the baby's mother and father and little bro- well, older brother, uh, Junior, who's home. He- so the baby can't go home. So one of the most incredible twists, as you mentioned before, Luciana Lira is Junior's, the, the child's name, the older 7-year-old, I believe he is, uh, mm-hmm. bilingual teacher, and uh, she gets called. In, they put her down as their emergency contact, and here she is. Here's Luciana Lira, who, uh, who cared for Suli's child, explaining how she got into this situation. I so said, listen, Marvin,
9: I am willing to help 100%. I really did not know this family. I mean, I, uh, Zuli just came to the United States, I think, a year ago. And Marvin has been here for six
3: years. And Junior is my bilingual student.
11: And that's how I met them.
2: That is just <laughs> unbelievably ago First of all, you think, I need to move to Stanford. What kind of people do you have there? You're incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, super teacher of the year. But tell us about her.
10: Um... She's she's so inspiring. She She's a wonderful woman. Uh, when I first uh, met her, you know, it was after the day uh, that I had the chance to talk to Suli for the first time. And I told her, I think that what you guys are doing is amazing. This is almost a case study. Let, please let me be here and let me document what's going on. And she was very open to that. You know, I'm a professor, she's a teacher and and, and I told her we're both trying to, to do something for, for our students. I think that what you're doing is, is amazing. I would love to be able to document the, the, the this miracle that you're being part of. Um, and she said, sure. And you know, she, I don't think that it was completely clear to her at that moment, but that's, that's what happens with this type of personalities. Uh they, they don't think twice. They, they're going to say yes. They're very generous. And and I learned a lot from her. I learned a lot from everyone, uh, uh, from all the participants in here. And, and, and I sure learned a lot from her. It, she represents the, the, the committed teachers that, that, that we have. And, you know, like I initially mentioned, she thought she was going to uh, stay with the baby for uh, a couple of days. And she ended up staying for five and a half weeks at that moment. At that moment, she—I she, mean, no, none of us knew if Suli was going to make it or not. We didn't know what were going to be the secondary effects or side effects from from COVID. Um, you know, it, it was it was at a moment where uh, you wouldn't let anyone inside your house, uh, uh, and, and I and I told her I'm going to be very very careful uh, w- when I come in here because I was in COVID a positive environment. So having all those precautions. You know, I think that it was a leap of faith within all of us because I'm I'm also part of the community, and it was a, it was a community effort saying, "Hey, let's try to honor this story, and and let's try to 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 show that when we work together, we can we can do something."
2: You, you show a pretty critical moment. Uh, let's go back to your film for just a moment about how how difficult it could be for care as well. Here's. A very emotional moment. As you were saying, Luciana didn't necessarily know all that she was getting into. Uh, she's been looking after Zulie's baby for weeks at this point, uh, and she gets a call from the hospital saying that Zulie needs to be discharged in an hour.
9: We can't. I am sorry. You're telling me you're giving me one hour to make arrangements for a patient who's been in induced coma for a, a month. You cannot discharge this woman in one
4: hour. I am sorry. I just can't.
2: Can you take us behind that moment and, and how something like that, even we don't want to cast dispersions in the hospital because I'm sure there are just circumstances, but, but how that happened.
10: Um, you know what? It's uh, it's uh, I'm just, I'm just reliving the moment right now. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how it happened. It was very organic. I happened to be there. Uh, I was following them as much as I could uh, like every single uh, moment of the day. And, and, and the hospital called and said, you know, she's ready. She's ready to go. Before that, Marvin, the, the husband, called her and said, hey, the hospital is saying that she's ready to go. But nobody was sure because she was waiting for that phone call for the past two days. And the hospital uh, didn't say anything at that point. So all of a sudden, she's ready to be discharged. You know, nothing was ready. It's like, so what's going to happen with, with the baby? Can the baby go back home? Uh, we have to understand that at this moment, there's very little information for everyone, for the hospital as well. The, the hospital was going through a lot, so it's like okay, you know, let, let, let's move on to the next thing. It, it was, I think that there was a, it was a moment of crisis uh, uh, during the story for sure. It, w- it was a bittersweet moment because she was being discharged. So if, she, if she's being discharged, you know, it means that she's getting better and she's ready to go home. But at the same time, it's there's so many unanswered questions at this moment. Can the baby go back uh, with her uh, if, if they're still um, COVID positive? Uh, what's going to happen with the baby? What's going to happen with the with the care and the rehab of Sula? You know, she's going through a lot of PTSD. She needs rehab. She could barely walk at that moment. So I think that it was just a very emotional scene, uh, and, and 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 I think that I'm you know that, that's what you. Uh, aim for when when, when you're uh, shooting a documentary to be in the right place at the right moment and i think that I, I i got lucky to be able to to witness some of those scenes we're
1: talking to oscar Guerra. he's the producer behind the new frontline documentary love life and the virus so marvin the father here he had worked in a restaurant he lost his job sully of course is in the hospital so these families th- this family they're not american citizens so they weren't eligible for any of the help from the government, I understand they had to rely on private uh, help from uh, immigrant support groups in Stanford. Was that their financial situation?
10: So we're trying to uh, maintain the the, the, fa- the the family's privacy mm-hmm. as, as much as we can. Uh, what I know for sure and what I can share is that they are uh, they were helped by building one community. Mm-hmm. Building one community is a, it's a, an institution here in Stanford. That helps immigrant families, uh, regardless of where they're coming from. They ha- help them establish here in the, in the in the community, and they help them, you know, thrive uh, with many different things, with legal help, uh, with uh, access to jobs, um, access to food at, at, at times. Uh, so, so that's that's why uh, both uh, building one community and tiny miracles; those are two of the organizations that help this family uh, uh, a lot. Because yes, they're they're an immigrant family.
1: Yeah, and and finances obviously were were a concern. So let's so so Suli's now rehabilitating out of the hospital, still rehabilitating. Her husband and her younger child are still positive for coronavirus, um, so the baby couldn't come home. They're home without the baby.
10: Right. It, it, it was a. Well, just imagine what Suli is going through. Uh, she's she's going through so much, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you know that you can have your baby home, and then you need to. the the The, the, the doctor said they need to test. Uh, they need to test negative for COVID before they can. Uh, we can even talk about a reunion. Um, and in, in the film, you know, there were a lot of. Again, we're talking about a moment where it was so hard to get tested uh it's so hard to get tested there was a lot of uh, the the language barrier you know there's translators there's uh uh but 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 nothing was easy nothing was easy for them simply like who's gonna pay for the the the, the testing because at that point testing was not 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 free um you know is it it started being free uh Testing here in Stanford, uh, but only until recently. So that's that's why the community effort was so important. And, and of course, they were desperate to to, to be tested and, and test uh, negative, so they could start planning that that reunion. And it was just a, it was a very dramatic uh, moment. It was almost like two weeks w- 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 until we had to wait for for the testing, the results to come back. Uh, it, it was. It, 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 it was a very, very uncertain time
12: for the family,
2: Oscar. I'm curious if, if you step back and and look at, I'm sure you've seen myriad stories from your wife. You've heard a number of stories. Uh, what we're seeing is just one of them, which is hugely impactful. When you step back and and, and look, what's the story of of this coronavirus that you, as you see it, because you've been able to witness it up close.
10: You know what? I think that it's, uh, I think that we all have a, our own story about the pandemic. I think that we all t- tell and we've lived our own story. But once you go out of your comfort zone and once you realize that there is a very vulnerable, uh, community, that it's living a very different story the way that you have lived it. I think that, that that's why that's the power of documentary. I think that, uh, Suli and Suli's family, they represent the, the reality for many working class Latino families in the States. Uh, but at the same time, their story is a contradiction because this normally doesn't happen. You know, I, 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 I've I talked to them and, and, and I told Suli, Suli, what do you think would have happened if you were in, in, in Guatemala? You know, and, and, and she said, I don't think I'll, I'll be telling this story. She said a couple of times, uh, Marvin said, you know, without insurance, without money, you die. It's as simple as that. So So, their story is very uh, it 's very representative, but it 's very typical in the way that it evolved so I, I i we think that this is a good case study and how things can can happen uh, you know when you have the support of your local community we we all became local during the pandemic, so being there for each other, I think that it revealed the, the, the power of the community um, and like like we've mentioned you, during a moment of crisis, I think that we reveal both the the worst in us but also the best that we have to offer
1: you know one last thing for me oscar you mentioned that uh sully's mother became sick her stepfather i believe her niece was even her mother-in-law i mean there was a lot of coronavirus everywhere and yet they were remarkably strong even in their moments uh their worst moments, Suli said, I only came to the United States to die when she feared that this was not mm-hmm. going to turn out well. Of course, she did get the baby back, and they did eventually test uh, negative. But the I found their strength as a family remarkable.
10: You know, I, I, I've had the, the pleasure to work with a lot of uh, working-class families and, and, and document their stories. And their resilience is is inspiring. You know the the, the way in which they perceive life, and, and and it's it's just hard work. It's uh it's uh it's community, it's effort, it's being there for the family. Family is one of, of of the most important and sacred things. So remaining strong, remaining united, even when they're physically separated, because we're talking about a brother in Chicago got COVID, uh, a mom in in in, in Guatemala, uh, the stepfather, like so many different people in their family got. The coronavirus, you know, and, and, and the things that we know so little about that, uh, we started hearing on the news about that maybe it's related with blood type and who gets more affected or not. Um, so, so, you know, uh, towards the end, she starts sharing that part. They didn't know why they got it uh, and, and why so many people in their family. But what they know is that they were going to remain strong and they were going to remain united no matter what. And, you know, it, it, it's a it's a harsh reality for for Suli and Suli's family and the the community they 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 represent but they also they're 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 a very very strong um community and, and they're a very united community so i think it's a it's it's a good balance there
1: well, thank you so much. Uh, really, congratulations. The, the the footage and the story you told was really, as Jagger said, um, very inspiring and very impactful.
2: Thanks, Oscar.
10: Thank you so much for the time. It was, it, it was my pleasure.
2: Oscar Guerra is the producer of the new Frontline documentary, Love, Life, and the Virus, which you can watch it tonight at 10 o'clock right here on WGBH. You can also find it online at pbs.org slash That online component starts at 7. Coming up, America's soul on ice. Amid the pandemic, there's been a major increase in the use of force against immigrants at Immigration and Customs Enforcement detention centers. Ali Narani joins us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Before we do go
1: to Ali, though, our colleague Zoe Matthews has been keeping track of the governor's live coronavirus uh, press conference, which is WGBH's live streaming. So far, Baker has said that the seven-day average in Massachusetts is at 1.8. That's below the 2%, but he said it's creeping back up in certain parts of the state. No hospitals are overwhelmed, however. Today, they're going to release this enhanced community data, which will be available online at mass.gov backslash covid Dash Live. That will tell you your individual towns. Apparently, there are 33 uh, communities with more than four per, uh, four cases per thousand people over the last two weeks, and they're going to have to get in- enhanced testing, tracing, isolation, etc. Division of Local Services, DPH, Labor Standards, State Police will coordinate increased enforcement effort to ensure businesses and restaurants are following COVID instructions. Uh, Bakers authorized the State uh, Police <coughs> to enforce new rules around gathering sites. Uh, and that has begun at Logan and Worcester Airport um, and families in moderate or high risk communities, which you can find out, as I said before, on that mass backslash covid slash live website. In those communities, they should avoid play dates and large gathering with friends. No message yet on whether he's going to mandate uh, mask wearing. So that's from the governor. Up next, we're going to hear from Ali Narani about immigration. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. So most Americans support the president's efforts to stop immigrants from coming to the United States, but not his anti-immigration rhetoric or sentiment. While they do want to limit immigration now, particularly because of wanting to contain the spread of COVID-19, immigration is no longer the top of the list of America's concerns. Joining us online to talk about this and other immigration headlines is Ali Narani. He's the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. His latest book, there goes the neighborhood. How communities overcome prejudice and meet the challenge of American immigration, Ali Nirani. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate it. Good morning.
12: Uh, thank you. Good morning.
1: So, Ali, we're going to start with two programs that just seem insane to me. <laughs> <laughs> the first one. The first one. Tell us about U.S. citizens. Who are married to foreign nationals? What's the rule there?
3: Sure. I mean,
1: I'm hoping it's changed. So, the story was from the end of the end of July, it, but it's it's not changed as far as we know.
12: Right. So this goes back to the original CARES Act, uh, the the financial relief for uh, for the country in the in the context of COVID-19. Well, CARES Act relief was extended to U.S. citizens unless they were married to someone who. Uh, did not have a valid social security number, or unless their parents did not have a social security number. So, as a result, across the country, you have about 1.7 million American citizens uh, who have gone without COVID relief, uh, uh, financial relief, because of who they are married to. Um, so, in essence, there's a marriage penalty for a U.S. citizen, or even a parent's penalty, if that spouse or parent uh, doesn't have a valid social security number. And keep in mind, just because you don't have a valid social security number does not mean that you're not paying taxes. Oftentimes people are paying taxes with an individual tax ID number. But to answer your question, it has not changed, uh, because Congress has been unable to move any sort of a, you know, extension of, of COVID financial relief.
2: So this, as I understand it, also applies to their children, which I think you just mentioned as well. What's the rationale behind this? And it seems that the the solution for families would be to get a divorce, not because of yeah, a relationship, exactly. but because they just want to salvage this support.
12: I, the rationale, I think, on this it was that you know everything was moving so quickly when they passed CARES Act originally. That you know this was jammed in there and you know I don't think that members of Congress wanted to kind of take on the the heat from the public that okay you know dollars are going to families where uh, somebody may not be a citizen or doesn't have a valid social but this is something that can be solved by the administration it's actually been very good to see you know Senator Rubio from Florida kind of hold the mantle on this uh, and really urge his colleagues in the Senate uh, to fix this issue
1: but you know it's incredible when you think about it. It could be Jared Bowen. It could be it could be me, born here, raised in the United States. You marry somebody from another country. You've been paying taxes here for forty years, fifty years, sixty years, whatever it is. This disaster happens. You lose your job. You are an American citizen, and the government in this proposal is saying, not proposal, in this rule is saying, drop dead. Essentially, I mean that's it, it what's is. happening.
12: Out of the, the, the list of thousands of things that make no sense in the context of immigration policy, this is clearly kind of the top of the list right now. It, and it, it It's nonsensical.
2: As you mentioned, Senator Rubio has been very, very vocal about this and, and just th- th- how illogical the entire thing is. Is there a sense that this is going to change, that this will be amended anytime soon?
12: Well, it's uh, it's obviously really good that it is a Republican who's pretty well respected by his peers. Um, that is pushing it. So that improves the chances, but this all is going to come back to whether or not you know Democrats and the White House can uh, get to a compromise that actually gets legislation through Congress, you know, before you know, as soon as possible. So this all wound up in the bigger uh, mess of of COVID relief.
1: Do you know something? Ayanna Pressley said months ago, when we had her on. We were asking about President Trump's policies on a variety of issues and what the what the rationale was. And she said cruelty is the rationale. And when I just read the book about written by Trump's niece, uh, the first chapter was entitled "Cruelty," and it was talking about the cruelty within his own family and the cruelty he saw uh, his his father uh, of his father toward his siblings. And so there's a there. it's. it's I guess it's not that surprising that this with Stephen Miller in there, kind of a no-immigration person about anything, that that this is happening. But that's not the only one. Tell us about – okay, so you fill out the form because uh, you, you, you want to apply for um, uh, uh, visas and you leave out your middle name on the form because you don't have a middle name. What happens?
12: <laughs> so, you know, this is an interesting one because – You know, I think most people think that to become a citizen, it's like getting a library card, right? You go, you fill out a pretty simple form and, you know, a few months later you go through a test and voila, you're a citizen. The fact is that to go through this naturalization process, you know, immigration attorneys, tax attorneys will tell us that that process is more complicated than, you know, putting your taxes together. So what the administration did and, you know, a really, really kind of a vicious rule change that they didn't even go through a formal process on. They said that every field within uh, um, the naturalization application has to be completed. Even if you don't, like you said, Marjorie, even if you don't have a middle name, you have to put NA. And if you don't, they kick that application back. Um, so it's just it's you know a death by a gazillion paper cuts. To the immigration system.
2: Well, this seems this one does actually seem very, very intentional to to trip people (laughs) up to to not leave these blank spaces. But not only for the applicant themselves, authorities who have to fill in their portion of the document. It seems if they make a mistake that discounts the application as well. Uh, and and I was reading that in some cases people are having to get typewriters because they're, they can't necessarily fill in the form. I mean, it, it just seems the architecture of this whole thing is set up for failure.
12: It really is. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when you know Republicans would say we want our government to act efficiently. Well, um, in this case, they are adding bureaucracy, they're adding paperwork, they're adding time and, and money to the process only to... You know quite frankly, end immigration as we know it to the u s
1: listen to some of these absolutely insane details. You don't put down your apartment number because you live in a house you're rejected. You don't give your parents' address because your parents are dead. You are rejected. You don't name any siblings because you're an only child or no work history dates because you're only an eight year old kid who's applying rejected, rejected, rejected. As the headline says in the Washington Post, it's like a Kafka-esque plan. No. I
12: (laughs) I don't know how you stay so calm,
1: Allie. (laughs) I don't know how you stay so calm. I mean, this is just baloney.
12: So Jared brings up a really important point. So there's a particular visa called a U U visa where – if you know, if I'm a witness to a crime or a victim of a crime, and I'm going to cooperate with the police, in essence, kind of putting myself in danger, I can again then get protected and, in essence, be able to adjust my legal status. So that U visa application needs to be completed in a large part by law enforcement. So, as Jared pointed out, now USCIS is kicking that application. Back to that police chief, that sheriff, who put in all the time to complete the, the U visa form because, you know, they left a particular uh, a field blank. Uh, and this is, this is somebody who is cooperating with law enforcement to keep the public safe.
2: Okay, Marjorie. I'm I'm just thinking that Ali is calm because he sees this over and over and over again. You have to, as as Juliette Kayyem always says, pace the rage. I would assume.
1: I guess, but these poor people. I mean, who have very little money. They're in a foreign country. I, I. It's just. I, I. Okay. I'll shut up now. Go ahead, Jared.
2: So well, the interesting part of this. I mean, it's a it's a perfect segue that we seem to have a sense that despite what. You know the last two stories that we've talked about, where there does seem to be this trend to deny immigrants' uh, rights or services. That are we finding that American attitudes toward immigration is changing? Is it is it is it changing in a positive direction?
12: You know, so that's interesting because even um, you know the, the most recent polls from NPR and Ipsos, and you see you know broad. You continue to see broad support for. Uh, the immigrants who are here and you you see questions about you know immigration moving forward and in essence kind of the the flow of, of people and we saw these results very similar in a Gallup poll at the beginning of the summer in fact in the Gallup poll they saw for the first time since really 1965 an uptick in the value of immigrants and immigration to the US across across a variety of demographics in the country um, but these questions, and, and there's a big difference between kind of, you know, supporting immigrants who are here, supporting the president who is saying, you know what, we don't necessarily need people to come in. But then I think as stories continue to come out from the border where the administration is not detaining and deporting unaccompanied children, the administration is expelling unaccompanied children without any sort of adjudication in their case, any sort of protection for these kids. So when you when you... Say you know, pace the rage. You know, when I'm reading these articles and talking to folks on the border, it's hard to pace the rage when we as a country are expelling unaccompanied children back to Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador.
2: When do these polls surface, or when do you see these trends? That I'm asking in light of the coronavirus. Are yeah. are, are people feeling a little bit more humanitarian in this moment when they realize that this disease is just ravaging people around the world, especially those without means?
12: Well, I think what's happening is that um, over the course, one of the only upsides of COVID-19 is that the public has come to really appreciate the contributions of essential workers across the board and essential workers in particular who are immigrants. Um, And we've seen that those numbers really spike up for immigrants, supporting immigrants who are here on the front lines um, since the beginning of the the pandemic when it hit the U.S. Um, The question in people's minds are, Okay, the person who's coming across the border in the future or or next, you know, are they bringing COVID-19? And that kind of that's what Trump wants people to believe is that immigrants who are coming here, they're going to bring the disease, where in reality, it's the business traveler or the tourist uh, who is a much more likely vector of COVID-19.
1: Well, I did think it was interesting, Allie, that um, that the concern Americans have about immigration has been, as this Ipsos NPR poll showed, been eclipsed by coronavirus. Number one, racial justice. Mm-hmm. Number two, unemployment. Number three, interestingly, political extremism. Uh, number four. This was from the end of July. So, I think coronavirus has changed a lot of our political thinking. Obviously, it's hurt President Trump.
12: I think so, and you know, for for immigration to be that low in terms of priorities for voters going into this election is really bad news for for Trump, because you know when you look at the polls of Republican voters over the last few cycles, immigration has always top of the list. For Democrats, immigration was always kind of middle of the list. So if that number is going down, or if that immigration as a priority is going down for voters across the board, it means that it's also going down for for Republicans. And it was such an animating factor, you know, against Clinton and, you know, in favor of Trump in 2016 that, you know, I could see Trump trying to really gin up uh, energy around immigration for his base so that it it, it, it reemerges as kind of that, that motivating factor for his his voters.
1: We're talking with Ali nirani He's the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. Ali, let's get back to these children that you mentioned um, yep. before that are being expelled from the country. Take us through. How is this happening? Um, they're coming to the border unaccompanied, I assume. So what happens, or maybe they're not. You tell me.
12: So what happens? What happened is that back in March, um, the administration actually sent CDC, the Center for Disease Control. Uh, they used an the authority they have until under um, it's called Article Forty Two, and what that says is, in essence, that if someone who comes to the border uh, and as it enters the country is thoughts to bring disease into the country. They can be removed You know immediately so since the 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 you know the implementation of article 42 You've seen a few things happen number one adult migrants who are coming for work um, They have been detained and returned to Mexico, you know Immediately, but the other thing that's happening and it's much more more alarming is that unaccompanied children who are you know fleeing whether it's poverty or violence uh, in typically Central America they're getting to the border you know, you know they're typically you know their parents are typically you know, you know cobbling together the dollars to get them in the hands of a smuggler the smuggler takes them to the border gets them on the other side in the past CBP would have to process that individual that child they would have to put that child into a detention facility for no longer than 72 hours turn them over to Health and Human Services, and then that child will go, their case would be adjudicated. What is happening now is that CBP is holding that child, putting them in, there were reports earlier, of putting them in a Hampton Inn or some other hotel, and not even putting them into the system, but just expelling them back to Central America or Mexico. So in essence, you know, the administration and CBP is disappearing children at the border.
2: So I have two questions on this front. First of all, what's the ages of the children, the range of ages of children that we're seeing? And are they skirting the system to do this? Or do they feel it's within their purview to not have to enter them into the system?
12: So, you know, the reports, reporting, and I would really highly recommend um, following uh, Lomi Creel. She used to be with the Houston Chronicle. She's now with ProPublica she's been reporting the these issues uh, for a few years now. It just always has the the best the best information so in Allie, her reporting, how do you spell how other, do you
1: spell her name how do you spell sure? her name
12: Karel? L-O-M, uh, L-O-M-I, and then last name is k r i e l
1: thank you go ahead
12: um, and what she has reported as well as others is that we're seeing toddlers you know as <laughs> young as you know two years old up to you know mid teens so we're talking across the range. In um, some reporting from last week, I think, uh, she wrote that between April and June, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, encountered 30, over 3,300 un- unaccompanied minors at or between ports of entry. Of those, just 162 were sent to federal federal shelters, as you're, they're supposed to be by law. The rest, nobody has an idea. Maybe some of the well, rest? You know, that's, go ahead.
1: I, I was just going to say... Um, One of the stories talked about children being sent back to Mexico, even if they're not from Mexico. I mean, that they're sending them back to the countries they did not come from. How could that be?
4: They,
12: They are using Article 42 to not just remove, not just skirt the law, but really remove any sort of human dignity from these children. Um, and you know, that that's the authority they're operating under is our article 42. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I believe that there are lawsuits filed to protect these children. Um, uh, but that's, that is what the, that is what president Trump is doing. It's, I think, I don't think we can kind of say the administration anymore. I think that this is, you know, this is his, his ideology, his philosophy when it comes to immigration being, being executed.
2: And I expect the same lack of transparency that we saw with the detention centers that we really, it, it's really hard. You, you appreciate the work of reporters like Lomi Carell that you've just mentioned, but theres it, it's really hard, I would imagine, for journalists, for advocates such as yourself, to really get an accurate picture of what's being done and how it's being done.
12: Exactly. So, I mean, you've got reporters, you have ACLU, you have other attorneys who are just like, hammering the administration for any sort of documentation but again keep in mind like these this is let's just roughly 3,000 children who'd never been entered into the system so this information is only coming up because parents or relatives are calling attorneys or calling reporters saying i can't find this kid my kid Um, but you know these 3,000 kids were never uh, you know they were they were never put into the system and turned over to an independent contractor um, hired by ICE to expel these children back to countries that may not even be their own.
1: So, one last thing about this. So, that yeah. means that there could be children, um, teenagers, or maybe even younger, separated from their families. Their families don't know where they are. They can't get in touch with them. And the, there's a possibility that some of them are, are in countries they didn't even come from.
12: At Is that a time the state of a global affairs? pandemic. Yes. At a time of a global pandemic.
1: Okay, Ali. Um, uh, one last thing. In general, apparently there's been a big Im- uh, uptick in violence um, during the pandemic against mm-hmm. immigrants in ICE detention centers. Several stories about this. What's happening?
12: So there are roughly about thirty thousand people more. That number will go up a little bit. It'll go down a little bit. Uh, currently detained in federal federal facilities. Um, earlier this summer, there was reporting that that. Of that roughly say 30,000, about 3,900 COVID-19 cases. But the rate of testing within uh, detention facilities, at least according to the reporting that we've seen, has been atrociously low. So the point here is that detention facilities are petri dishes for COVID-19. Um, and folks who have been detained have been pushing back. They've been protesting internal in, within the facilities. And in response, you have uh, whether, you know, typically private, private facilities, their, their staff, uh, um, using force to, to subdue, uh, uh, folks who are detained using pepper balls, uh, uh, pepper spray, uh, um, and just the reporting coming out is, is really scary because I mean, these are folks who are terrified that they're not getting any sort of care or, for, or testing for COVID-19. Um, and, you know, they're being physically, you know, physically assaulted as a result.
2: And ICE is explaining this by saying that there is an increase in disruptive detainees.
12: That's what they're saying, um, but that's why I wanted to begin with that number of uh, and just a sense of kind of the the level of desperation that people are feeling within these facilities. That you know, there's no there's no social distancing, there's no space within them, um, and you know, we've seen reporting over the last over the course of the summer that it's not just the Detainees who are impacted, but it's also the staff who are there as well. And remember, those staff are not just you know within those facilities; they're going back home, they're going to their communities. Um, you know, from these facilities are, are just not safe.
1: Well, I, I, there, I guess I mean, what can you say, Ali? This is just like a disaster. And one last thing for me: there was a nationwide uproar uproar when we learned about babies being separated from their parents? Is it just that the news of the pandemic is overwhelming everything, the people's fears, unemployment, et cetera? Um, Because there doesn't seem to be much of an uproar about all these children separated and missing.
12: Well, you know, I, I think like this, some of this reporting that Lomi and her colleagues are doing is, is it's starting to kind of see the same trajectory where people are starting to ask questions. It's starting to get picked up by other outlets um, but you know the environment in general is very, very different. And I mean look in our ten minute conversation we touched on six or seven different topics within immigration policy. And yeah.
1: that's,
12: you know, off a list of what twenty or thirty. So there's you know, it's overwhelming what is happening. And I just think that it's really important that um we're all continue continue to tell these stories of how these children are being treated.
2: Well Ali, we appreciate your your perspective and in, in shedding light on all of these issues.
12: Hey, well, thank you very much for having me. It's great talking to you all.
2: Yeah, thank you, Allie. Ali Narani joins us regularly. He's the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. His latest book is There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. Well, coming up, it's the main event. Travel writer Christopher Muther pulls off a Kenny Bunkport getaway without breaking one travel restriction rule. He's next for that and more on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. So even though we're supposed to practice the six-foot rule of physical distancing, travel writer Christopher Muther says he's throwing his arms around Providence, Rhode Island. He joins us to talk about that choice and how he pulled off a vacation to Maine and other travel news amid stringent new travel restrictions. Christopher Muther is a columnist and travel writer for the Boston Globe. Hey, Christopher, great to talk to you.
13: Well, Marjorie.
1: Hello, hello. Hi, you there? Can you hear me? Great. Yes, we can hear we can hear you very, very well right now. So, okay. Christopher, before we get to Pro- Providence and Maine and all these rules, um, g- great piece by you about in the Globe about what it will take for airlines to convince us that we should fly again. Apparently, many of us are not anywhere near convinced. What's the that story? That
13: is very true. It's very true. Um, most people right now. Uh, majority of people said um, they 're not ready to fly there 's been so many surveys done um, by the travel industry um, about people getting on planes and flying and just from anecdotal stories i 've heard from friends, I know that you know from empty planes uh, people aren 't quite ready to get back you know back up in the air and when you think about it, it makes sense because Right now, a lot of the country is slightly undesirable for travel outside yeah. of New England. Yeah. So, and we're not allowed to go to many, many, many countries, people from the United States. So it really kind of limits our options.
2: Well, what are the airlines doing right now? I mean, the reason I don't want to get on an airplane is because one of the airlines I fly regularly is American Airlines, which is, it seems, as you reported, they're filling their planes again. They've done away with, uh, let's leave the empty seat middle. So essentially you get on a plane and it sounds like you're you're defying what all the, the suggestions are, which is to keep six feet from everyone.
13: Yeah, exactly. You know, American and United both. Um, have sort of done away with the open middle seat. Most, A lot of airlines right now are leaving that middle seat open. And even though you're not six feet from another person, there's still something somewhat assuring about having that middle seat empty because at least you don't feel like you're on top of someone. Um, But most airlines are now doing something they call electrostatic fogging. Um, which is essentially they go through with a device that looks like an insect fogger, and they spray a disinfectant um, that electrostatically clings to surfaces, and that's supposed to cling for about 24 hours, but they're doing it now between every flight. So they're doing a pretty thorough cleaning, and then after after they do the fogging, they're going through and wiping down touch points with strong... um, Detergents, you know, um, like seat belts, tray tables, screens, anything like that. So they're, you know, they're trying to do as much as possible to reassure people that it's okay to get back on a plane, you know, because they're losing billions of dollars. Um, I haven't been on a plane yet except to watch them clean. I watched United and Delta (laughs) and what their cleaning procedures are, but I haven't flown yet. So I can't say, you know, I can't say with any authority at this point, kind of what the experience is like.
2: Well, I was going to ask you that, but it's my favorite thing to ask the experts who who know the most about what they would do. How do you feel about flying? Would you fly?
13: Um, I think right now I probably wouldn't fly. Um, I tend to be of the school where I'm a bit overcautious about things, uh, so I try not to eat inside restaurants, you know, I've eaten outside but not in, and, you know, I feel like just sort of kind of stepping away from confined spaces. You know, one of the things I said in the story is, you know, there's this misconception that the air within the, the plane itself is kind of recirculated, and it's actually not true. It goes through a, a, a HEPA filter, which is the same one that's used in surgical uh, rooms and hospitals, and it's supposed to take out 99.7% of contaminants, and fresh air is getting pumped into the cabin every two to three minutes. So even even though planes are probably cleaner than they have ever been in our lifetimes, <laughs> it's still not quite <laughs> ready to uh, jump on one.
1: But you know, Christopher Muther, I, I I sometimes I, I'm stunned at how stupid we must be here in the United States of America, we hear over and over and over and over, the big thing is, wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance, wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance. (laughs) So here they are running around cleaning with electrostatic charges and UV lights and all these things you're talking about, where just last week, American Airlines announced a no mask, no service policy, just last week. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, isn't the first thing you got to wear a mask and maybe you can I, take it off when you're eating or drinking briefly but put it back on? It just seems so back end forward.
13: I completely agree with you on that, Marjorie. Uh, you know, it seems like airlines were very slow to sort of really start enforcing the mask rule. Uh, and to me, it was baffling that some just kind of started requiring passengers to wear them, even in May and June. You know, by that point, we'd been told for about a month that we should be wearing masks, uh, and I think a lot of it just had to do with perception and also not wanting to um, scare off customers or not wanting to deny customers. Um, but yes, I completely agree that it was something that took too long for. Some airlines to um, to jump on. You know, the other part of that, though, is the risks and non-risks involved of getting COVID on a plane, and there hasn't been enough research really done around it. You know, they've they've tracked uh, one flight where a passenger um, became positive, and which they could trace directly to the flight, and hundreds of flight attendants have gotten um, sick. A couple of them, a few of them, have died those they haven't been able to trace directly. So, you know, it's all about, you know, people, you know, weighing their personal risk when they get on a plane. Obviously, if you have pre-existing conditions, um, don't get near a plane. If you're feeling sick, don't get near a plane. One of the things that has kind of irked me about um, the industry as well is they're not, in the United States, is they're not taking temperatures. And, you know, the argument to that is, Asymptomatic people won't have a temperature, so you're not really you're not really making a difference. But for me, it feels like any layer of caution that can be applied should be. So why not throw in temperature checks at TSA screening? But that's just me.
1: <laughs> but I just want to be clear, though. So as of now, there's no rule that everybody has to wear masks on the airplanes flying domestically in the United States.
13: No, the, is, there is a rule. To? I mean. People people have to be wearing masks. But it it is also one of those things that's kind of up to the individual airlines to enforce. And as far as I know, they're all enforcing it. They're all doing it. You know, Delta's been throwing people off of flights. They turned a flight around um, last month when someone refused to put their mask on, which I applaud that they would do that. And that's like a great measure to take. It's kind of. You know, you can't be on this plane if you're not wearing a mask, which, again, completely makes sense.
2: Well, Marjorie's already yeah. in Santa Barbara, so she doesn't need to hop on another plane because she's, she's just out That's there for right.
1: good. <laughs> I, I I'm was broadcasting just to to ask, live from the beach.
13: <laughs> just about to ask the two of you if you would get on a plane. Like, how how do you no. feel about it?
2: No, no, <laughs> no. and I'm, I'm the same as How about you, you Jared? No, no, uh, I'm the same. I don't really want to – anywhere where I feel – That I would be inside where people are taking their masks off. I don't want to be.
1: And, you know, before we leave this story, Christopher, you had a great statistic uh, quoting this guy, Arnold Barnett, the science professor at MIT. Found that the chance of contracting COVID-19 on a full flight is 1 in 4,300 compared to 1 in 7,700 on a flight with empty middle seats. Yes. Which really gets me going because... The government has bailed out the airlines, not just more this, in this recent COVID situation, but after 9-11. You know, the whole reason we had the money given out to, to people that perished in 9-11 was so that the airlines wouldn't go bankrupt uh, because of the, um, you know, the disaster of 9-11. So they get bailed out right. twice, and this is how they repay the American taxpayer. It just I feel like we're chumps.
13: Yeah, in a way, you know, it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, the airlines after 9-11, you know, they they had about a decade where they weren't hugely profitable, and then they were hugely profitable. And what they did with all that money wasn't sort of prepare for any kind of disaster like this, but buy back their stock. So as a result, yeah. you know, they they came into this without anything um, and then was asking the, the government. And... That money is essentially has been covering wages for airline employees, um, and that goes um, for another couple of months, and then I think you'll start seeing layoffs happening in the airline industry, pretty widespread.
2: So, Christopher Wheeler, okay. can we talk about uh, something maybe a little more fun? Some, and actually, yes, yes, much more fun. Something you got to do that I did not. I was supposed to be with friends in Maine for the 4th of July, and then Maine brought the hammer down and shamed me <laughs> and told me I could not go because I am from Massachusetts, so I did not go, but you found a way around it. First of all, tell us what Maine is doing to those of us in Massachusetts.
13: Maine is really just like... You know, turning their nose up and putting their hand in our face, <laughs> and telling us to telling us to get lost. Um, so right now, the rule for Maine is that if you come, you need to quarantine for two weeks. And quarantining means you can't go into grocery stores, you can't go into regular stores. You can get food delivery. Um, You can quarantine in a campground or a hotel, you can go outside, but you can't be around other people for a limited amount of time. Or you can produce a negative COVID test um, within 72 hours of the time of your arrival. And as you both know, it's not easy to get a COVID test um, and to get your results back quickly. So I had to be strategic about this. And my husband and I found a uh, place through our hospital, through our, um, our healthcare in Peabody. They had open slots. We drove to Peabody. Um, they told us two to three days. Fortunately, we got them back within 24 hours. My parents also, you know, the whole thing of the trip, just to back up, is my, my parents, everyone's had a rough year and I really wanted to take my parents to Maine. So we went through these sort of obstacles and hurdles to get up there. But, yeah, Maine has been one of the more stringent states for people from Massachusetts to get into.
2: Which doesn't make as much sense because we're we're doing fairly well. I know there's that whole back and forth, too, of of why we were singled out, Um, especially I think you pointed out that if you're from New Jersey, you can go to Maine and we're, we're not allowed. Is that true?
4: Yeah,
13: so the only states that, you know, in the Northeast that aren't allowed are Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And, you know, Massachusetts, as you know, last week we started to tick up a little bit, but we're still under 5%, and that was sort of the benchmark that Maine was using. Uh, And I don't, obviously they're not right now. But, yeah, any state in the Northeast except for Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So what I said in the story is, you know, Maine is kind of, invited all the cool kids, the cool states, to sit at their table That's right. the cafeteria. That's right. And
0: Massachusetts
13: yeah. and Rhode Island were kind of treated like the kids who don't shower after gym class, and <laughs> we're not allowed to sit at the cool kids' table, and Maine exactly. doesn't want us.
1: <laughs> but, 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 you prevailed, and as yes. you wrote in your story, you went to a place, my God, called Hidden Pond in Kenny Bunkport. And the nightly rate, as you wrote, Christopher Muther, on a scale of Zuckerberg to Bezos, was about a Rockefeller. <laughs> <So> <laughs> That's this
4: was, true. <laughs> this,
1: was, this was big. What did you say? A thousand bucks a night or something? Really expensive? Like yeah, a
13: thousand bucks a night. It's, yeah. um, but you
1: know what? I looked up it up online. It's spectacular. I Tell know. us about I Hidden I did, too. Pond. Yeah. <laughs> you may as well do. If you've got a big wallet, this is a place to go. Tell us about Hidden Pond and Kenny Bunkport.
13: Yeah, I mean, it was just ranked the number six resort in um, the Northeast by Travel and Leisure. It's, you know, this beautiful grounds, there's two pools, there's this amazing restaurant, there's trails all around, you know, you can borrow bikes there if you want. It's just a glorious place and it's near beaches and and it was $1,000 a night. Um, and the way that I kind of justify that, at least to myself, so I don't feel guilty that I spent that much, is that um, well, it's for your parents, for your parents. It's, well, it's for my parents, and also the fact that you know my vacations, not work trips, but vacations, get canceled. Um, yeah. You know, right now, right now, I'm supposed to be on a crossing of the the QE2. I'm just going to do an Atlantic oh. crossing, um, and you know. So there was that that was refunded. I was supposed to go to Hawaii. That was refunded. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to a fancy um, resort, and I'm going to take my parents.
6: So,
2: (laughs) So, Which is very nice. You're a very good son. So, But give us a sense of, so you were able to go to Maine for people who are trying to, uh, I think even still are on the fence about a vacation that they might be able to eke out in this time. Uh, How how does a vacation work, and does it work? Did, did, Did it feel like you were getting away, and did it? do what you wanted it to.
13: It, it did feel like we were getting away. Um, and I think part of that was because we, you know, our $1,000 night um, place, it wasn't just a room, it was kind of its own little lodge. Um, and I could spend time with my parents because I knew we had all tested negative. So there was kind of a relief around that and a normalcy, which was kind of great. Although, you know, when you step out, people are wearing masks and that sort of thing, and trying to keep apart. Um, but it really did feel like, you know, we went to the beach very early because it was hot, uh, and we didn't want to be around other people. And my mom had just had surgery on her back, so oh. we needed to kind of do do easy things. So we we drove to familiar places and did a little bit of walking and... It was, it was nice. I have to tell you guys, though, that of, and uh, I've been writing at the Globe pretty much since the Pilgrims arrived. I think I
0: recorded. <laughs> exactly. And that was my That's first right. travel story, <laughs> coming to the New World.
13: And, <laughs> and I have never written a more divisive story than this story about Maine. Um, every person from Maine who read this story sent me an email telling me to stay home don't oh, God. stop whining, I'm entitled, I'm spoiled, they don't like people from Massachusetts. Those, those were the polite ones. I don't know Why? There. So,
4: Why? Um,
13: you know, and the thing is, I followed the letter of the law to get there, and they were still not wanting people from Massachusetts. I'm sure this is a select group, but there was a large select group that just kind of trolled me on Twitter and went to town on this. So no one keyed my car because I had Massachusetts plates, which now looking back, I'm kind of surprised. But (laughs) uh, I would say to people considering going up to Maine is maybe just don't mention you're from Massachusetts while you're there. (laughs) That's just my helpful hint.
1: I I would say they're just, just, even though uh, things have not been perfect here in Massachusetts. I mean, come on, really? I think they're jealous. Well, I maybe think... they're
2: bitter that they were part of Massachusetts at one point, remember? That's then they split off. So mm-hmm. so,
1: so Christopher Mew there, um, you did do a wonderful piece about Providence, Rhode Island, and said you were throwing your arms around it uh, in the midst of the pandemic. So tell us why.
13: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I have never had like a endearing relationship with providence yeah i never found it to be you know i never had a bad experience there but it, i just never connected with it and when i went last month it was kind of great because you know it's a city that's a college town um the colleges aren't in session it was quiet but it still had the amenities of a city and I could walk around and look at murals. I could eat outside yeah. at restaurants. And it was pretty quiet. And it was also just nice to be in an urban setting. You know, I live in South Boston, and it's frustrating for me here because when I walk around outside, the sidewalks are crowded. People, a lot of people don't wear masks. Um, there's probably steam coming out of my ears from the anger when I yeah. see this when I'm walking around, whereas in Providence, you know, depending on the neighborhood, you can pick a really quiet spot. You can walk along the river. You don't really encounter many people. People there seem to be good about wearing masks. So I had just, you know, kind of a great, peaceful time. I even rented a yacht on Airbnb. Um, it was kind of filthy, but still, it was like, it was like I was had a yacht, and I was by myself, and it felt very safe to me. Wait. Yeah,
1: but, but you did say it kind of was a state-of-the-art around 1982. Is that the deal? <laughs> yeah.
13: <laughs> you know, it had, it had this, this microwave that I think had vacuum tubes in it, something oh, God. to keep it powered. Oh. It was, and I think it had last been cleaned in 1982.
1: Oh, well. oh. So, so you just wanted to do this so you would be on the water the whole time or away from the madding crowd the whole time or what?
13: I thought yes, definitely yes to that. And also, you know, going to a hotel, sometimes you have to get in an elevator. And the thing about elevators now, it's usually like one or two people at a time, and you might pass other people. So staying in a boat in a marina seemed like a really kind of safe option. It's also something I'd never done before, so I thought, you know. Why not?
1: And you went up to the famous uh, Federal Hill section of Providence, which was uh, you know, where a lot of Italian restaurants are, and it was well-known years ago when uh, the head of the New England mob used to sit up there, Raymond Patriarch, in a rocking chair. You could actually see him up there because I lived there a million years ago, and it was fun to see him sometimes sitting out there. But what's going on there, Federal Hill?
13: Yeah, so every Friday and Saturday night, they're closing down some of the streets. And they're just doing like a big outdoor dining scene, and that's another really great thing because again, you know, Rhode Island, like Massachusetts, they allow some indoor dining, limited capacity. Um, but if you know, again, you're not you're like me and you don't want to go inside, you have the option of being outside at tables that are placed far apart, and by closing the streets, they're able to do that. So. You know, that was another thing that I liked about Providence was, you know, the ability to do that or the ability to get take out Korean wings and eat them on the campus of Brown, where there is no one around, and except what about- for dogs.
2: <laughs> what about the uh, the art exposure that you had? I- I've covered the arts down there through RISD and theater, but uh, you paint a picture, ha, 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 did not, pun not intended there, of, <laughs> uh, of, of a great public art scene in Providence.
13: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I am always slightly critical of Boston compared to a city like Providence or Montreal is that there, we don't have a whole lot of murals. And I'm a big fan of sort of like large scale murals and street art. And there's just so much of it in Providence. And there's also sort of art walks, self-guided, that you can put in your phone and it will send you through Google Maps from one place to another. So there was a day I did that. There was a day I gave myself an architectural tour, kind of the same deal. So there were things to do where you know, I wasn't with a uh, a group. I was doing it myself, but I was getting the same information. And, you know, again, it was kind of nice to get a little culture during the pandemic because, Jared, as you know, it's a little tough, or it was tough when mu- no museums were open. Um, yeah. And it felt a little a little isolating, and I was missing that part of my life. So, that's been great.
1: Hey, Christopher Muther, we have just a minute left, a little bit less actually, but I just want to know you mentioned South Boston. I'm obsessed with South Boston. One of my kids lives there. I never see anybody wearing masks or very few people. Shouldn't somebody do something about that? Shouldn't somebody show up and say, put the mask on or they're fine or something? I mean, suppose you're 75 and living in South Boston. You know, you're afraid to come out of the house, I would imagine.
13: Yeah, and speaking as someone who's, you know, practically 75, I'm afraid <laughs> to come out of the house. Yeah, it's all no, fun. I... I agree with you. I sort of want to go out and shake my fist and say, well, you kids get off of my yard or put your mask on instead or something. But yeah, it is, it's frustrating. I don't know if it's just this part of the city that it's happening. It feels like it is more so here than other parts of the city. But I agree with you. You know, I'm, I'm like you, Marjorie. I say, put on a mask, wash your hands all the time, stay away from people, um, (laughs) you know but again I'm a cranky old man is almost 75 so well, what listen, do i know?
1: listen to you you're like half my <laughs> I age know, you're going to knock if you're close. almost 75 then that makes me 250 so that, <laughs> Christopher, we don't want we don't want to go there thank you very much as always Christopher great stuff
2: Thank you so much. Great
1: talking to you
2: guys. Okay, great speaking with you. I'm just going to stick with 23. That's 23. That sounds good. Why not? (laughs) Christopher Mcdill joins us regularly. He's a columnist and travel writer for the Boston Globe. Coming up, CNN's John King is here to go over the latest political headlines. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Public Radio. Jay Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. We are joined on the line by CNN's John King to bring us up to date and all the latest out of Washington D.C. Hello, John.
11: Hello. Uh, happy-ish Tuesday.
1: <laughs> happy-ish Tuesday. <Exactly. laughs> okay. I guess. I guess. Yeah. That that about captures it, John, doesn't it? Happy-ish Tuesday. Thank you. Well, but, but we do have some exciting news. Maybe later today. Or maybe within a day. Uh, Biden's pick for vice president. Um, who's, who's still left and when are we going to hear about this?
11: Well, reverse order. I believe we're going to hear tomorrow. Um, I think it could slip another day, but, uh, all indications are, um, that he has either made up his mind or he's very close to making up his mind. He was at his beach house in Delaware and he came home to Wilmington. Um, there are some, several reports. I was just looking at a New York times reporter's. Who've you know tripped upon a ballroom at the big hotel in Wilmington, being made up for a big event? Oh, uh, and so, oh! Uh, so in- indications are there is an event coming. Um, uh, our reporters are being told it won't be today. That doesn't mean it won't be today, but you know, at least as of a while ago, it wasn't today. Who is it? You know, look, I- I've been through several of these, uh, and there are sometimes there faints and weaves and bobs at the end. Uh, I think that the pressure from uh, Democratic base activists, especially from the blood of the black community to name a black woman Joe Biden has promised a woman uh, so we know it will be a woman. Um, there was a Gretchen Whitmer trial balloon last week that she had had an interview with the former vice president you know last weekend and I think you know uh, David Axelrod was just on my show and he's, he posited that the Biden campaign leaked that on purpose to see what the reaction would be and you have seen in the last twenty four forty eight hours a lot of blowback from african American uh, leaders and activists in the party uh, saying it should be a woman of color, uh, and they, should, they prefer a black woman. So we'll see. We'll see. If it's, a, if it's a black woman, who is that? Is it Senator Kamala Harris? Is it Congresswoman um, Karen Bass? Is it former National Security Advisor Susan Rice? Um, I think we'll know by this time tomorrow, um, but I don't, know, I don't know the firm answer. So this, this is a tough one. And remember, people's careers, the, their path of somebody's political trajectory Will be changed in the next 24 hours. So uh, there's a lot of rumors going around. I try to stay away from those because it's so personal and it's meaningful to people. Uh, but it's, it's an exciting time having been through these before.
2: You know, it certainly is an election year like no other and a time like no other. But is it, does it really come down to it, it may not even be decided this minute that it, that it is such a last minute decision?
11: You know, I've talked to um, candidates who've done this before. My first campaign was Dukakis, and I've covered this ever since 1988.
2: And and and,
1: and, know, and well, excuse me, excuse uh, me. You uh, broke the story uh, on Lloyd Benson, <laughs> <laughs> did you not?
11: I, I did. I, I was a. That was a. It was a career changing moment. For yeah. Me. Uh, this can this can matter more to political reporters than it can to campaigns. Let's be honest. Uh, there's very little evidence in history. Uh, that a vice presidential pick changes the arc of the race. Uh, you might find one or two, but there's not. There's just not a lot. Uh, did Pence, you know, help Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton? I would argue no. Um, did Pence answer concerns among conservatives heading into the Republican convention in 2016? I would argue very much yes. Uh, so these things can be meaningful in a moment. Uh, they're not... They're not usually decisive come November. Uh, So if you're Joe Biden right now, what are you trying to do? Uh, You do have this agitation in the Democratic base. You do have this racial reckoning going across the country. You do have a lot of younger African-Americans who were probably, some of them not born and some of them very young, back when Joe Biden did pass that crime bill in the 1980s. But when they hear about it, they don't like it. Uh, And so I do think there's a question for Joe Biden. You know, Whitmer is Michigan. It's a state in play, suburban women. It's a a good pick, right? Quote, unquote, it's a good pick on paper. Um, But uh, will he have African-American intensity if he does that? Will he have turnout? Wasn't that part of Hillary Clinton's problem? You could dissect these things forever. Um, But I I do think we'll get it soon. And Joe Biden does. He makes this choice from a position of strength. The New Monmouth poll today shows a 10-point lead nationally. Uh, Joe Biden leads in most of the battleground states. Uh, He's competitive in places like Ohio that tend to go red. Um, He's ahead by a little bit in the North Carolinas uh, and ahead by a little bit in Florida, uh, the places that tend to lean red but right now are toss-up states. Uh, So he does this from a position of strength. The question is, does he pick safe? Uh, and who would that be? A lot of people think Harris is the safest pick. Or does he go bold? Do you pick someone like Susan Rice who's never run for office? Uh, that would be unconventional, but we're living in pretty unconventional times.
2: And to go back to the other point, you were saying that you, you've talked to people in this position before, to my question about uh, if, if in this very moment, so close to the edge that they're, they're still deciding it, that it's yeah, not say, uh, determined... Yeah.
11: Yeah, I'm sorry, Jared. I got a little distracted uh, by Marjorie making me feel old. Uh, 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 Sorry, uh, sorry. uh, uh, No, uh, what they'll tell you is, you know, that a lot of them say, I knew early on. Uh, I just wanted to think about it. I had to make sure they did the vetting. You know, they had to do all the research. But my gut told me early on, or this person I have, Joe Biden likes to use the word simpatico. Um, you are picking he's, he had the job for eight years he more than anybody you know, we could talk to uh, Vice President Pence could do this uh, Vice President Cheney, I guess, if you he were here you know, could do this about having the job and what it 's like to be a loyal number two but to try to carve out a place and most of the candidates i 've talked to about this say you know it 's someone they had a, they immediately said, I, can, I see a comfort zone here. I see myself working with this person. They bring some things to the table to address my weaknesses or to buttress you know, my strengths. Um, and so I'm assuming Joe Biden, being such a creature of Washington, a creature of politics, and a creature of the vice presidency, uh, probably early on, and we'll hear more about this as we go on, had a okay it's you know these two or these three and then you go through a process but then you face the lobbying and you do the polling Uh, and so the candidates a good candidate would say i have to listen right i have to listen that's why i have senior advisors so that i listen to them i have to look at the data but this is a comfort choice this is a comfort choice uh, especially because you're making it from a position of strength john mccain picked sarah palin in a position of weakness he was trying to just you know stir things up and see what happens um uh, even his people will tell you John McCain had serious doubts about sarah Palin's capabilities to be President of the United States. Um, they say that after the fact, but he knew he was losing and he was likely to lose and he was trying to you know just just tip the world on its head Biden's in a very different position
1: so so john king uh, let 's move on to money for people that are still without work are is Congress going to get their act together on um more money for the unemployed, uh, unemployment money, or a stimulus package. We know the president just offered this, uh, you know, the four hundred dollar thing, but it sounds like it's kind of a mess and not likely to happen anytime soon. So, where are people who are, you know, going under here?
11: They're in limbo, Marjorie. Uh, they are sadly in limbo. And this is a bipartisan problem. I know the Democrats out there are going to hear me say that and say, you know, this is all Trump. This is all Trump. But Washington was dysfunctional before Donald Trump came here. Uh, And Washington is even more dysfunctional now. Uh, And so you have – I get the Democratic argument. The Democratic argument is the Republicans want to be too small. They don't have the school money in there. They don't have the money for the post office in there to secure the election. Uh, They don't have some state – they don't have state and local aid in a place like Boston. Just talk to your mayor, talk to your governor, even your Republican governor. Say we're going to have to lay off people, right? We're going to have to shrink state or city services. So the Democrats say, we need big, and we are going to hold out to get big. I completely get the argument. Republicans say, we won't give you big, um, but we would, give you, you know, we would give you this, that, and the other thing, including the unemployment. Uh, and so the question is, do you support the Democrats holding out for the bigger package, knowing that we're getting closer to the election, and if you don't get it now, you might not get it this year? Um, or do you say, all right, we're going to do half a loaf and then come back and talk again? Uh, the Democrats won't do that because they do not believe the Republicans will come back in good faith on those other issues. And they have every reason to believe that. A lot of Republicans don't want to spend the money and they don't want to give the Democrats what they want about especially the post office and election reforms and things like that. So this is really a choice of, you know, uh, where where does the pressure come from? You're right. The president's plan is unworkable. uh, So there's some indication the White House might go back and give it to the lawyers and give it another try. The people I would watch, Marjorie, are not the president and not Speaker Pelosi. Not that they're not important, but there are a number of Republican senators who are very vulnerable. Uh, And if the senators want to keep their majority, uh, those senators may have some sway over Mitch McConnell. Uh, to say, we need to get something done, or else I'm going to lose my seat. Uh, and that may, in turn, put some pressure on the president to come back to the Democrats and say, okay, I'm not going to give you $3 trillion, but I'm willing to come. Pelosi says, come back at $2 trillion and we can talk. So that's what we're waiting for. Will the White House say, we will meet you halfway, at least once you get the, the number, right? What's the big number? How much are they willing to spend here? Once you get that, you can negotiate the details. Until you have that, it's impossible.
1: Okay. Well, one of the things that seems that would be also, to me, scary to the GOP is that if s- some states and cities that are really feeling the brunch of this don't get some money, we're talking about having to lay off teachers and firefighters and cops. I mean, so you can talk about the unemployed, but you can also talk about losing more of those workers, which is a disaster, I think, in most people's eyes for everybody.
11: And it just continues the coronavirus disruption and devastation, right? Right. Uh, we have the health care issue, right? Even in Massachusetts, the case is starting to creep up a little bit more. A state that that did a pretty good job, you know, stamping it out, pushing pushing down, flattening the curve early. Uh, we're starting to see a bit of a resurgence in a lot of states. And so the question is, can you move quickly enough to keep it down? That's the health care piece of it. But then you see the economic disruption, the school disruption, Uh, Even sports, you know, a lot of people roll roll your eyes and say it's just sports, but it's part of our life. Everywhere we look, something has been disrupted. And if you've lost your job or if you shut down your small business and you're still holding on some hope of reopening it at some point, uh, you know, the longer the clock ticks, the more painful this gets. And and I I think that is the point that whether you're a Democrat or Republican or an independent out there listening, um, you know, call, write, get in touch with the people who are making these decisions and make sure they understand the personal nature of your situation so that you're not just a statistic, you're not just a number, it's not just X percent of people or X percent of businesses. Uh, they need to hear from you and that's, that's when uh, they should react.
2: You know, John, we heard from a bunch of those people on this show earlier today calling in with their stories about how they're making it through, you know, plowing through the money they had saved to buy a house or taking early retirement, I mean, just drastic measures. And you hear these callers and you hear their stories and you wonder where the urgency in Congress is and then you begin to wonder what happens as this begins to play out longer and longer and if it loses steam.
11: I hope, Jared, people listen to those stories. And I don't want to overgeneralize because there are some members of Congress who are um, – I'm not agreeing with their politics. It's not my job. But whether they're Democrats or Republicans who do a fantastic job of constituent services, of getting home, and of listening to people. I might not always be able to satisfy every constituent, but they go home and they do the work and they listen. There are unfortunately a lot of people who come here and who get caught up in the beltway. And I'm, you know, I'm a kid from Dorchester. I live in Washington, D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C., where I think six of the ten most affluent counties in America – or right here around Washington D.C., Washington is not America. Uh, we don't have many of the stresses that the rest of the country has yeah. because we ha- we have the government, we have the defense industry, we have the technology industry, we have the homeland security industry. We have you know we are protected from most big economic waves. That does not mean uh, the African American community in Anacostia, D.C., is not. Uh, paying price here. That does not mean all the first responders, the bus drivers, the healthcare workers, you know, the police and the firefighters here um, in, in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. aren't about to feel that thing you just mentioned about the state and local budget crunches uh, but largely, especially you know, middle-income and upper-income people, we're isolated from it here. You don't see it and feel it. Uh, this is why I keep in touch with my family. Uh, this is why I travel when I can. You can't do much of that in the coronavirus. But if you just stay in Washington, D.C., you will not understand the pain that is out in America, and I worry about that.
1: So John King, uh, there was a lead story on your website at CNN about uh, how Trump's having to do with Trump's obsession with football and how it had something to do with his leadership. And I, I, I do, I mean, I know why he has talked over and over again, opening the schools, because that's a big deal in terms of the economy and the stress for kids, et cetera. But wh- what is it with him and football? Because as we know, we talked to Trenton Kuznarek, our sports reporter before this, and who basically said, you know, a lot of these colleges are not going to, have a football season at all, but what's with the president and football?
11: I think there are several layers to this. One is he is genuinely a fan. Uh, Remember he at one point tried to buy the Buffalo Bills and the NFL would not sell him the franchise. If the NFL had sold Donald Trump, the Buffalo Bills, we would not be where we are today. Whether you think that's a pro or a con is up to you, Um, but that's a fact. Um, He would have been a football owner. He would not have been still in Manhattan and the like, but, um, but he is a fan number one and he is a fan and look, I, I want football. Um, you know, I, want, I, I'm, I watch baseball. It's not the same right now. I'm a fan. As a fan, I think sports is very good for our psyche and for our sense of, right. okay, not everything. Back to the disruption. Not everything has been ruined and disrupted by coronavirus. But he's also a politician, Marjorie, who in 80 days is going to face the voters and actually shorter than that because early voting starts in just you know, three and a half, four weeks. Uh, and he needs people to feel normal again. He needs people to feel things are getting better. Not that the things will not be good by November. Uh, Things will not be good when people start casting early votes in the middle of September, early October. The president needs them to feel that it's getting back on a better track. And so schools open and your kids safe and your life, you know, your home back to quasi normal is better for the president. Football, meaning things are bad. it's the fall, the leaves are turning, they're playing football, um, that's better for the president. So part of it is political and part of it is personal. Now, the question is, does he again, as he did early on, if you go back and look at the data, if we had waited two more weeks for the big reopening, we could have shoved the baseline down lower. It was about 18,000 cases a day. If you would shoved that down below 10,000, got it to 5,000, then we would not have had the surge where we were doing 70,000, close to 80,000 a day. We just wouldn't have. All the scientists will tell you this. So does the president's impatience um, get in his way again, if you will? Uh, And do you push and push and push? And then what do we have? Kids going back to school, things reopening, cases rising. Uh, I think that's the challenge of the next, say, six weeks as we get closer to the election. By the time you get to early October, most voters would have made up their mind. And in a bad – we've talked about this before – the economy's bad. The coronavirus is bad. Your schools are disrupted. Your sports are disrupted. You can't go to the theater. Whatever it is your personal interest is has been disrupted. That's an environment for change. When you vote in such an environment, you change things. Uh, and that's not good for the president.
2: Well, talking about image making, you know, creating the uh, an image of fall that Americans want to see yesterday, I think it was yesterday, we learned that the president was thinking of giving his convention speech at either Gettysburg or the White House. Where does that stand now? And and I think a lot of eyebrows were raised when the White House was mentioned, but he could do that even though uh, he'd essentially be campaigning there?
11: Um, All of the ethics lawyers, Democrat and Republican, say both are bad ideas because both are federal properties, and the president of the United States should not do that. Um, he says he will do either the White House or Gettysburg. Now he has said things like this before, not about something so big and important, but he has said, "I will do this before and they push him and push him and push him and he changes his mind. So we will watch how this one plays out. Um, uh, Donald Trump has blown through a lot of uh, flashing yellow lights and even some stop signs in his political career. So will he do this um, maybe um, Is that what he wants? Yes because he wants he's a TV producer and a very successful one. Uh, whether you' like him or not, he gets the moment and he gets the drama and he gets the theater and he thinks that would help him. I would remind everybody, and I'm not going to talk about it. You can go on the Internet and look. He did give a famous speech at Gettysburg late in the 2016 campaign. His campaign told us it would be his contract with the American voters. It was going to be a reset. It was going to be a serious policy speech. And what he did was lash out at all those women who had accused him of uh, improper sexual conduct, and he threatened to sue them all. Um, So Gettysburg does have some special meaning for a late campaign Donald Trump speech.
1: So, John King, one last thing from me. Um, you know, we've been reading for days about uh, Trump's guy in the post office and saying, you know, no overtime and mail can be a day late and all these people fired or resigning. We're reading about uh, mail and voting concerns and people are afraid to, you know, that the mail won't get there in time or early. I mean, the, overall, what I'm talking about is growing fears about this election. Um, is there a sense that that. People who are on top of this are handling it, or are we looking at a debacle?
11: I think the next month is critical to this question. I don't have a definitive answer because you can go to different people and they tell you different things. Uh, but the level of concern, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader of the Senate, just went on the floor a short time ago and raised this issue again. Um, I think that uh, this is, there are some serious questions here. Now you have to really, you know, if it's all Democrats raising the questions, forgive me, I'm not saying they're not legitimate, but that's what happens in an environment. You have to say, wait a minute, is this all partisanship? So I think a voters should take it upon themselves to look closely into this and research this. B um, this will be an issue if they try to get back to coronavirus spending. But did you ever imagine, we always talk about election watchers, right? Both parties get to mm-hmm. send lawyers mm-hmm. and watchers to precincts if they think there's you know, shenanigans going on. Uh, both right. parties, when you're counting absentee votes, get to put lawyers and neutral observers in a room, as they should. You should have people, you, there should be oversight and accountability. Did you ever think we were going to think that you're going to need election watchers to watch the mailman? Uh, And to watch the post office, (laughs) to to see whether in the United (laughs) States of America (laughs) an election would be administered honestly in the United States of America, it's nuts. Because there's no wide-scale fraud in American voting. I know there are Democrats who are still mad about Florida 2000. I know the president can give you two or three examples of minor mail fraud voting. But then he says it's millions and it's tens of thousands. It's just not. We have a great tradition in this country, and states run elections. And look at Utah, look at Washington State. States that have, have a, Washington State has a Republican Secretary of State who loves mail-in voting. She says it's the best thing they ever did in their state. It can work. But I think the suspicions here, or the skepticism anyway, is legitimate. And that we're going to spend a lot of time fighting over this in the next month or so. And It is critical. People, this is something that people should not tune out. They should not just give the, oh, it's the post office. This matters.
2: All right, John King. Oh, I don't even know about Happy Ish. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 mean, I, I ruined
11: know, that, didn't?
1: We're going to have to be you're going to have to be in in the studio, John, for like two weeks or three weeks at a time. You're not going to be able to leave from election that's right, until yeah. it's over.
11: Could be, months. Uh, may, you know, we may be count that. That's a whole other ball of wax. We can talk about another Tuesday. We may be counting for at least days.
2: You need to yeah. stock up at REI right now for your your that's camping right. out at CNN. <laughs> Hey, John, thank
1: you. Yeah, espresso. (laughs) Thank God for espresso. Thank you, John.
12: Take care, guys.
2: Thank you so much. John King joins us every week. He's CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays and Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Coming up, we're opening up the lines and asking you have you traveled this summer amid all the restrictions and precautions? That conversation is next on 897 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we were talking to the Boston Globe travel writer Christopher Muther a few minutes ago about what he had to go through to pull off a brief vacation in Maine amid the state's new travel restrictions for Massachusetts residents. Well, we're opening the lines and asking you: Have you give, given traveling a shot this summer? If it means getting tested ahead for COVID-19, even it means having to quarantine, 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Have you done what the uh, previous uh, message we just heard, talk about staycation, staying home and kind of, this is what Rick Steves told us about, Jared, he talked about discovering your own hometown anew. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say all the historic things in Boston I've not seen, because I Lived here, but that's an option. Of course, if it weren't like nine thousand degrees outside, it might be, <laughs> be a better option. But have you tried to quench your wanderlust or not? Eight seven seven three zero one eight nine seven zero. You can email us at bpr at wgbh. dot org. So. You you've canceled, I know you have a big vacation every summer, right? Out to the Midwest?
2: Uh, uh, to Montana, yeah, I canceled yeah. it. Uh, the, the ranch that I go to st- still was open this year. Of course, you'd have to do social distancing and whatnot, but I just looked at it and I thought, it just doesn't seem safe. It was much like we were talking with Christopher Muther about before, that I, I just didn't feel comfortable getting on a plane. In this case, you have to... C- take two planes to get there. That means two airports. It just seemed like a lot of risk that I didn't want to assume. So happy to stay here. And I will tell you, I have done some exploring. A couple of weeks ago, I, I walked all around Charlestown and the Navy Yard. You and did? Realized uh, how beautiful that whole part of town there. I hadn't been there since college, I think. And it was just gorgeous walking around oh and, and discovering my own city in a really different way.
1: Yeah, Charlestown in the bad old days was the home of the code of silence. Yes, I know. know. if If your whole neighborhood got wiped out right next door to you, you saw the whole thing. Where it was, you said nothing. Right? <laughs> you said nothing, but now it's very uh, gentrified and quite gorgeous.
2: Now there's Starbucks, and yeah, but it's got all those beautiful brownstones, and, it does. and it's very leafy and pretty. And it, as I say, it's so close to the water, and and it's just very close to Cambridge, where you can walk around the, the parks that they've created, where the skate park is underneath the Zakim Bridge, which was fun for me. I'd covered that skate park proposal years ago, so it was fun to see how how well Ooh. it's come to fruition. Yeah. Neat. Nice. Yeah. So it's okay. it's been kind of nice in that regard.
1: Okay. So what are you guys doing? 877-301-8970. Are you venturing out or are you just staying close to home and like watching Netflix? Let's start with Hannah from Weymouth. Hi, Hannah.
0: Hi. How are you? Thanks for having Good. me on. Thank you for calling. Um, yeah. So thank you. I just got back from Naples, Maine and um I'm a Mainer at heart. I was born and raised there half my life. Oh and I you know, we brought all our own food and we kinda of social distance. We still went on the lake and it was a really great time. Um and I don't know, I just I hate seeing some people shame you for still being safe but still trying to have a fun summer. So Hey, I, I misunderstood. Did you say you
1: went to Maine
0: that we just talked about? Yes, Naples, Maine.
1: So, did anybody stop you at the border and say what are you, what are you doing, or make sure you nope. were following the rules? Or that's the thing. I mean, um, Chris, you that talked nope. about being above board, but you can. I'm mean, not that I'm advising anybody sneak around, but you can kind of sneak mm-hmm. around because it doesn't seem like anybody's checking. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes, and we just. I mean, we have a one and a half year old, so we were trying to be as safe as possible but still trying to have a good summer and I think people can do it as long as they you know in their own um, personal morals and you know just stay safe around other people so
1: Hannah thank you very much for the call Paul wants to know if sitting in a beach chair with your feet in a sandbox, umbrella drinks, Jamaican <laughs> music, and of course some marijuana, it's Jamaican-mon, count for a vacation. Robert wants to know if, <laughs> if walking down to the corner store in the morning for his paper or walking to Whole Foods three times a week, does that constitute traveling? He says normally he would have been to six or seven states, but he's home. Thank goodness he says he has a swimming pool.
2: Well, you know, here's the fortunate part. We live in New England, and that is a pretty spectacular place to be, especially in the summertime. We're close to everything, even in Massachusetts. Even if you don't leave our borders, you, you can access mountains and lakes and rivers and, and the ocean. And uh, it's just so beautiful around here. You can just walk around looking at people's gardens, which is really, really pretty.
1: Yeah, that's true. I, lo- I love that myself. Kate in Somerville, how's it going for you? i uh,
0: good. I'm um... good. I recently drove to Columbus, Ohio wow. from Malden, and uh, I wanted to visit my brother's family because uh, I had a, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old nephew and a seven-year-old niece. And I hadn't seen them since January, so I thought if I didn't go in July, I probably might not have a chance to see them maybe for the rest of the year, the way things are going. So my brother felt like it wasn't safe to fly, so I got a COVID test and then left the next day.
2: And took a road trip by myself. Did you do it? Did you stop at all? How did you do it?
0: Well, it's a 12 hour drive, so I stopped in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on the way, and then I stopped in Syracuse on the way back.
2: Wow. So,
1: uh, did you get the results before you arrived in Ohio, or did you arrive in Ohio before you got the results?
0: I got the results um, the day that I left. So I knew I was negative in that way. Okay. You know, it was okay to stay in their house and, like, touch the kids yeah. and
1: stuff like that. Yeah, that's the other big thing. Kate, thank you for the call. That issue of, you know, you get you try to get your test. Um, my son got a test in Massachusetts. It took him 10 days to get the results, 10 days, which is so crazy because he just come back from somewhere and wanted to make sure that he didn't have the virus. And it, it's kind of r- ridiculous because it's almost like by the time you find out whether you had the virus or not, the time you were spent visiting is over, so you have to kind of, like, quarantine the whole time. You know, whereas if you can get a quick test, it would enable you to do much more traveling.
2: Yeah, and then you just, well, I guess that is the point. You, you have to kind of quarantine after you take the test because if you have such a delay, you don't know what's happened in the intervening exactly. time. And, yeah, very stressful. Should we go back to our calls? Go to Sean in the car. Hi, Sean. Hi, guys. Hi, how Hi,
14: how Sean. Good, how well, are you? Been, I... Good, thank you. I I've been uh, I stayed close to home and um v- visited up the North Shore for a couple of weeks and it was it was nice. Uh I saw the crowd was down a bit. Um and I saw that at least when I went up today that there was a number of troopers on the highway and and some cars were pulled over. They could have been speeding, but I noticed some they were all out of state plates. So I don't know if they were checking people or not. Wow. Um, wow. But I chose I chose to stay close to home. Um, but I have I had a colleague who's uh, single uh, who, who's gone on two trips around the country now, and he tells me just driving around to all different landmarks. He says he hasn't had very much uh, interference from from um, state cops uh, or anything on the road. So huh. I, I don't know how it goes as far as from state to state. Uh, you know the. Uh, the, the monitoring or how how well you can monitor, I mean there's people obviously on the road that you can 't stop everybody right
1: yeah, well Sean, that is that thank you for the call. that is a great point. I mean, people could cheat and and uh, it 's hard to say if anyone's going to find out, but you know what I found too i don 't know if other people have found this, but I have friends um, well f- people people 's parents, older parents, older grandparents who live in Florida. And they're really in a mess because it's really hot in Florida. Yeah. And I knew, knew one particular couple that wanted to come up here to visit their grandchildren. And um, the grandchildren aren't really keen about having them come. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, the, par- the parents of the grandchildren, I should say, yeah. because they're coming from Florida. So they've had to go jump through all these hoops to try to get a test and try to get the results so that they can be assured before they arrive at their... Uh, children's home to see the grandkids that they're not uh, positive. Or they've just given up altogether and just said they're going to stay in that hot, humid swamp all summer long because... Everyone rejects them that they want to visit.
2: You know, I, I heard a story on our air this morning about uh, a family that's hired, that rented an RV so they could travel around to the national parks. They've just rented it, they don't own it, and it has Florida plates, so they put up a big sign in the RV saying, We're not from Florida. Oh, so no. they could be sure that they're not harassed by when they're yeah. rolling through the national parks. Yeah,
1: it's like you're radioactive if you're from <laughs> Florida. Janine and Concord, thank you for calling.
4: Hi. Hi, Jared. Hi, Marjorie. Hi. Hi. Um, Hi. Uh, My husband and I spent last week in Pennsylvania in the Poconos golfing with my sister and her husband. And it was the only date on our calendar that stuck, you know, that we could do something that we had planned a few months in advance. And now we're quarantined for 14 days, but it's totally worth it.
1: So so why did the Poconos work out? Is it because people are further apart or the golf courses, you can social distance? What's the deal, Janine?
4: Oh, it, we had been there with my sister in the past, so we knew it's a little bit more rural than the rest of the state, and people really were good about wearing their masks. And the timeshare units are spread out wide. You know, they're not cramped. And they're going golfing, and we did some dining Outside and when we were inside, there was hardly anybody there. One night we were the only group there. We dined inside because it had been raining.
2: You know, Jean, I don't, Janine, I don't even know you, but I feel like I can hear it in your voice. You have that kind of vacation glow as you talk about this. It's great to hear.
4: We do, and and all the way home I was saying to Bob are we sure this was a good idea? And he, my husband has been working from home in this little room. He's been cutting computer code, and he really needed to get out <laughs> yeah. of the house. So yeah. It was for both
2: of us. Oh, that's nice.
1: Janine, thank you for the call. You know what I found has been really great this summer, going to the beach? Because once you're in your little pod and you're socially distancing, you can take off your mask and the wind is blowing and you're outside looking at the ocean. I mean, I, I you know, got the redheaded skin here, so I'm not really much of a beach person normally, but it's been really soothing. How
2: about you? I spend a lot of the time at at the beach, actually. Um, I I feel like I talk about this endlessly, but I do these long runs every Saturday, and I now take a little pause and I stop and sit at the beach for a while. Yeah. Uh, I find a spot where there is nobody and that's the beauty in running because you can go to those places that aren't easily accessed by cars. And then you see things like great wildlife. I saw a coyote a couple of weeks ago. This wasn't at the beach but this was running in the morning. Um but a place I hadn't ever run until I started running longer and in different areas with the pandemic and started exploring a little bit more. It's pretty exciting.
1: Well let's try to squeeze in one more call here. Dana in the car. Thank you for calling.
3: Hi, Marjorie and Jared. This is Dana, and I'm on 495. I'm just returning from a wonderful three nights with my family in Shelburne, Vermont. And on last Thursday, I went to Fall River and got one of the pop-up tent tests for COVID. And within 24 hours to the minute, (laughs) I got a negative test result and hopped in the car the next day and headed to vermont and it was just so wonderful to sit on their porch and be able to talk with my family and my granddaughters and grandson and it just was um it feels like i've been away for a really long time (laughs) it was really nourishing so
1: oh good um,
3: it can be done
1: Dana, thank you very much for that call. That's uplifting too. I guess we need to go to Vermont or the Poconos, Jared. Or the Poconos,
2: like... yeah. I've never been to the Poconos. That sounds <laughs> fun.
1: Neither, neither have I. That's Pennsylvania, I think, isn't it? The Poconos from Pennsylvania. Yes. I'm embarrassed to say geography is yeah. not my strong point. I have a lot of strong points that aren't actually strong points,
2: <laughs> like Ge-
1: sports and geography. Yeah. Sports yeah. and geography. I think we
2: tested your sports knowledge earlier. Yeah, I'm not Bruins. very good.
1: I'm not very good on. I'm not very good on sports. So I guess the the word is try to plan your vacation try to get Dana's right about those pop-up tests I know they have them in my hometown they have them in other places where you can get them really quickly and that makes a huge difference so maybe we can go somewhere exciting before the summer's over Jared I've been going to my sister's Luckily, she'll have me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll,
2: I'll, I'll figure out somewhere to go. Maybe I'll go visit you in Santa Barbara. I keep joking that That's you're right. in Santa, Santa That's Barbara right. right now. That would be nice, <laughs> with wouldn't your, it? With your water spray. That's nice. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can tune in tomorrow from medical ethicist Art Kaplan and Congressman Stephen Lynch. Our crew is Chelsea Merge, Merz, Merge, <laughs> Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubeli, Aidan Connolly. Our engineer is John LaClaw Parker.
1: And by the way, the big thing about Congressman Lynch is that we are going to find out a little bit more from him, I hope, about will there be another stimulus? Are they ever going to settle this in D.C.? What's going on there? He's in a primary race and we will have his primary opponent on uh, later on in the season. So anyway, Jared, thank you so much for coming in and, and uh, filling in for Jim. I much appreciate it.
2: My pleasure to be with you. I will, I will scope out the Poconos. I will have a full report for you tomorrow. <laughs>
1: Great. Excellent. Thank you very much. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jared Bowen. Thanks again for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and Have a nice day. I hope everybody's got an air conditioner because it's a hot one. Thanks for listening. See you later.